Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing the good, the bad, and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who've done some amazing things in policing. And I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works, or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised, as some of the topics can be distressing, and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. Uh, before I even go into talking about today's episode, uh, this is a very genuinely serious kind of health warning for anybody who's listening to this. This episode has got some truly grim uh, and quite shocking content that is not for the faint-hearted. Um, and I've really thought long and hard about whether this is just almost too much um, to put in a podcast. But I think my my overall decision is that the subject matter is so impressive and at the same time um, terrifying that I think it's an important matter of kind of public interest for those who are interested in this kind of stuff and for those who are interested I'm, I'm really thinking about uh, police officers people who work in intelligence services um, people who are working in some way around emergency services uh, people who are training to do those jobs people who work in the legal profession um, you know lawyers barristers people like that, uh, as well as the whole family of professionals who collectively make up the public safety and security apparatus of the UK. So please, before we go any further, if you're, if you're in any way uncomfortable with graphic content, just don't listen to this, okay? Um, this is not the radio, you don't have to listen to it. But if you're interested in this stuff, then uh, carry on. So today I'm going to be interviewing Bob Gallagher, MBE. And Bob has had a fascinating career, uh, initially in the Royal Navy, where he went to the Falklands, and he talks about that in our interview where his ship was bombed and he was very lucky to um, come away with um, his his life from from that conflict in 1982. Um, he then went on to become a scenes of crime officer in Greater Manchester Police. 
and had a very long and incredibly distinguished career in that role, becoming arguably one of the most experienced crime scene investigators in the UK and thus arguably in the world. And Bob talks in some considerable detail about some of the jobs that he did over the years. Uh, and it is pretty graphic. Uh, so, but the the particular bit, I suppose, in the interview that needs a special word of warning is that Bob was the crime scene manager for the Manchester Arena bombing in 2017. And in the same way that I said during the Stockwell interview, that that was an incredibly dark day for policing, the shooting of an unarmed, innocent man on the underground. In the same way, the 22nd of May 2017 was an incredibly dark day for the city of Manchester and for the many, many people who either lost their lives, the families of those people, and the families of people who were very seriously injured. So just to remind you what that incident involved. On the 22nd of May 2017, and I'm reading this from Wikipedia, just so that I'm um, keeps me on track really. An Islamist extremist suicide bomber detonated a shrapnel-laden homemade bomb as people were leaving the Manchester Arena following a concert by the American singer Ariana Grande. 23 people died, including the attacker, and 1,017 were injured, many of them children. The bomber was Salman Ramadan Abedi, a 22-year-old man of Libyan ancestry, and after initial suspicions of a terrorist network, police later said they believed Abedi had largely acted alone, but that others had been aware of his plans. In March 2020, the bomber's brother, Hashem Abedi, was found guilty of 22 counts of murder relating to the attack. The incident was the deadliest terrorist attack and the first suicide bombing in the United Kingdom since the 7th of July 2005 in London. So that's the brief circumstances, but Bob goes in to describe the unbelievable challenges of dealing with a crime scene as extensive as that. And it makes for fascinating listening, but it also makes for very grim listening. So I just want to make the point absolutely clear that this is not about gratuitous, titillating, um, guilish entertainment. This is about explaining how a professional goes about his or her work in that incredibly demanding role with a number of important objectives in mind. Firstly, to identify the person or persons who are responsible for carrying out such a horrific crime. To stop a further explosion being carried out by 
unidentified co-conspirators who may be elsewhere and who need to be stopped and to provide the coroner with the information that he or she needs in order to establish a full uh, cause of death for each of those individuals. So let's get into the interview. Morning, Bob. Can you hear me? Hello. Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, I certainly can. Those right. uh, unmistakable Ulster Brogue of yours. Let's see if this... Oh, is that coming up now? Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yes. How are you doing? Not too bad, mate. Sorry about that. Um, That's okay. I tried on my works computer. Um, it's a little MacBook thing, and it um, doesn't look like um, Zoom's completely downloaded on it, so... No. No problem. No problem yeah. at all. It's lovely to uh, lovely to see you. I've obviously we've spoken, but it's uh, we've never actually we've never actually met, have we? So uh, no. which, is, which is the case with quite a few guests on the podcast. It's kind of quite weird, really, when you you know you you know someone who they are by their reputation or by a referral, but you've never actually met them, and uh, and then the first time you meet them, you end up having really quite a sort of in depth conversation with them, which is uh, you know it's good. Yep. It's good though. Good. So how are you doing? Are you all right? Yeah, fine. Got a bit of a sore throat. <laughs> Woke up with this morning, so I've <laughs> uh, got some juice and uh, lozenges. So not to worry. Right, and a bit of a yeah. If you're struggling at any time, just let me know. But uh, no, it should be okay. So you know, well, welcome to the podcast. I think this is um, well. I just checked. Actually, <clears throat> went back just to check. But so you are the first guest on the podcast who is who is not, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, not a warranted officer as such. Um, so you were a sort of police staff, I suppose, weren't I you? I was, yeah, yeah. Um, police staff with the Greater Manchester Police and um, Counter-Terrorism Police in Northwest. Brilliant. And um, so the so the, the reason I wanted to speak to you uh, was, so you were referred in from Warren Barlow, who was a previous guest in the Counterterrorism Network, and uh, he suggested you'd be a really good person to speak to to talk about all things forensic, sort of crime scene investigation, because um, obviously you've got a massive, massive amount of experience in that. So just for the benefit of people who are going to listen to this, um, just sort of explain um, who you are and what your background is, I suppose. Uh, yeah, well, um, names, uh, I, I, I get a few different names because um, obviously being born, I was born and brought up in Northern Ireland. Um, my name's actually Robert Samuel. Um, and I got Samuel over there because that was after my granddad. Right. Um, and then uh, joined the Royal Navy in, uh, when I was um, 17. Um, and because you're from Northern Ireland, you obviously get um, Paddy. Right. So my time in the Navy was Paddy. Um, mm-hmm. And when I met a Manchester girl, I ended up um, marrying her. Um, it was Paddy to her because I was still in the Navy then. And then all my mates and all her family in Manchester called us Paddy. Uh, right. And then when I joined um, GMP, um, when I left the Navy as a radio operator, mm. the um, this is well, you shouldn't be called Paddy because that's a, um, a bit derogatory. <laughs> so um, with my first name being Robert, they ended up calling me Bob. Right. So um, I get Bob in Manchester, uh, right. or Bob in the, the CT world and police. Uh-huh. Um, Sammy, when I go back to Northern Ireland, <laughs> and Paddy from the Misses and uh, all her sort of families. But um, yeah, that, that. But I say most people know me as Bob Gallagher um, yeah. in the um, 
uh, in the police. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's a funny, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because uh, when I was when I was a uniform officer, uh, people called me Donners, and yeah. uh, and then when I went to special branch, um, for reasons I can't even remember, I got the nickname Snoop. Everyone called me Snoop, and still does. All those people from that world still call me Snoop. And uh, and then obviously, you know, uh, then you go off into different parts of the organization and it, was, it became either Ian, Sarge or Sir after yeah. that. You know? <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's um, funny, isn't it? So you, it come is. from, you come from the same part of the world as me then. So you're from uh, which part of the Northern Ireland? Uh, Londonderry, born and brought up in Londonderry, up in the northwest of uh, Northern Ireland. Right. Um, where, where my mother's from. Oh, right. Um, oh, yeah. Because uh, so um and you joined the navy so was that a sort of a family tradition or was that were you a bit of a sort of an uh you know the first to first to go down that route? No, it, it is a bit of a family tradition. Um, my my grandfather's um fought in the First World War, um they joined um the the uh, the all the Irish regiments the Ulster regiments uh fought at the Somme. Um, my great uncle, my, my granddad's brother, was uh, killed at Yeeps um in 1918 so he's buried over there so we go over there quite a bit Mm -hmm. he was part of the um, what they call the 10th uh enniskillen fusiliers the nickname was the derries yeah because they all uh, joined up from there the brothers all joined up consecutive um service numbers Mm -hmm. uh second world war um my my two uncles uh, were in the royal navy and my dad tried to join the navy but they said he was too young yeah. So in 1944, he joined the Merchant Navy. Uh, and from there, he was able to um, get onto a Royal Navy ship. Right. Um, and it was one of the first ships into uh, Jersey when it was um, liberated. So my dad was um, at Royal Navy. Um, and then, uh, yeah, um, when I left school, I always fancy going in the forces. Right. Um, but obviously it was uh, the head of the troubles in Northern Ireland at the time uh-huh. in the, the late yeah, 70s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, wanted to join the Marines, but um, uh, my eyesight was sort of uh, wasn't as good um, as uh, they wanted because I wore glasses. Yeah. Um, and then um, ended up joining the, the Royal Navy. Yeah. Right. And um, what, so where, what year was that? Just to sort of know. Uh, that are. was uh, 78, 1978. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, dare, dare I ask, did you end up going to the Falklands then in 82? We did, yeah. I went down the Falklands in 1982. Um, 40 years ago this week, we were um, getting ready to uh, go into the landings at uh, San Carlos. Um, I was on uh, HMS uh, Argonaut, which was uh, a Leander-class frigate. Um, right. Air, air defence was our sort of role. Uh-huh. So um, on the day of the landings, uh, on the 21st of May, um, we were what they call picket ship, which mm-hmm. was right at the top end of San Carlos, up on our own. Yeah. Um, we had a um, what they call a 965 radar, big massive bedstead radar that was uh, air defense. So we were stuck at the very top of uh, San Carlos. Um, so we could try and get the um, the plot, the uh, the air picture. Right. Of planes coming in. But unfortunately, the planes were coming in a bit low. Uh-huh. So we weren't picking them up very clear. Uh, we were relying on special forces telling us how many planes had taken off right. from Argentina, etc. Oh, um, yeah. Well, we, we I don't know if you've listened to it, but my previous podcast guest was Adrian Tudway, who was Royal Marines and, and landed, uh, you know, and fought at the age of 19. 
right uh, uh, in the Falklands and that's a really interesting listen and yeah yeah, yeah it's, a, it's it must be I imagine this time of year uh well it was the 40th anniversary obviously it's a very poignant time isn't it really I mean uh, do you still meet up with people who you went out there with yeah we've got um we're meeting up this weekend down at uh, Litchfield for a few drinks um on the Saturday and then on Sunday um which is the 22nd of uh, May um, we got hit on the 21st, obviously, uh, the day of the landings. Um, but we've got a memorial at the National Arboretum in Staffordshire, a Nichimez Argonaut Memorial for um, all Argonauts that were killed uh, First World War, Second World War. Um, the ship I was on was the, the fourth um, ship to be called Argonauts. Right. Um, and, and we lost two lads down the Falklands. And your ship, um, your ship was actually hit that day? Yeah, it? we we got hit. Uh, say we were out on our own, so that they targeted us. Um, and um, in the afternoon, uh, with about five waves of attacks, um, we managed to, to down uh, a mirage for one of the lads, managed to hit that with a sea cat. Um, and then uh, around about five o'clock-ish, um, or about half four-ish, uh, planes got through. Um, and we got hit with two 1,000-pound bombs. Oh um, both failed to explode. If either one of them exploded, I'm definitely not here today. Oh um, yeah, one ended up in the engine room, and one ended up in the the forward, the the front end um, Sea Cat magazine, um, oh where there was the two lads were down there, Ian and, and Matthew, uh, and they were killed. Oh um, and and what really hit us was um, uh, when we sailed the Falklands uh, on the um, 19th of April. It was the day after my 21st birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was one of the older ones down the mess then. Mm-hmm. Um, Ian was 20 years of age. He had just got married in the uh, the March. Um, then we sailed straight away. So he had actually two weekends with his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, he was 20 years of age. Um, and the other lad that was killed was um, Matthew Stewart. It was his 18th birthday. Oh, dear. So we had arranged to try and get a, a few tinnies um, when we finished action stations that day, yeah. but unfortunately it didn't happen. So uh, we lost those two. I oh, lost them, um, so uh, not lose some other ones. But so how many? Uh, how many were on your ship in total then? Um, on the the Argon, I was probably two hundred and forty. Right. Um, so it's a small type sort of frigate. Um, yeah. the, the the Leander classes were the sort of workhouses of uh, the uh, of work. Uh, horses of the um the, the Royal Navy mm-hmm. in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, mm-hmm. and then they all started getting phased out as the new equipment came in. Mm-hmm. Um, because say we had um uh, what they call Sea Cat magazines and Sea right. Cat launchers, um, but they had to be manually uh, loaded. So they're surface to air missiles, are they? Uh, they were, yes. So from the magazine, um, Ian and Stu would put them into a hoist. The hoist would come up onto the upper deck. Um, and was part of my job was then to get it off out of the hoist onto the launcher and then it'd be fired off. Right. But obviously everything now is all computerized and mm-hmm. the, the newer sort of ships that were down there, um, it was all computerized then. Um, but in, on the, the under class, it was all manual. Um, and as I say, where I was when the bomb hit, if the magazine had have exploded, then um, yeah, you're probably looking at the, the largest loss of Royal Naval life since mm-hmm. the Second World War. Oh my so, God! Yeah. Well, you're a very lucky man, then, aren't you? Really? Definitely. Yeah. 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 I still I mean, do the lottery. I don't know why, because I think <laughs> I used all my luck up that oh, time. But 
Oh, bless yeah. you. Yeah, well, Adrian described um, HMS Antelope being hit. Um, you know, he was up uh, on a sort of, uh, on, a, on a high point, uh, having landed, I think, the, the, earlier on that day, and then sort of watched the, the, the ship being hit and, and the magazines exploded and the whole, the whole ship was broken in half, you know? Yeah, she was about 100 metres from us when, um, when she was on fire the next morning. Um, when we heard the bang go off during the night, uh, we all rushed up to, to, to get the survivors off, but most of them had been off by then. Um, and then the next day she was just burning behind us uh, and then she broke her back and we were all st- stood on the ship's side because what happened was we lost all power um, mm. and we ended up having to just drop the anchors. Mm. Um, they then dragged us down San Carlos um, and uh, they gave us machine guns down the ship's side just to give a bit more sort of firepower mm. and put a blanket of lead up. Um, I don't think um, the, the Marines or the Paras that were dug in Sussex Mountain appreciated that because yeah. we were we were just firing blind and I think more bullets hit <laughs> hit the Falklands than hit the planes. Oh my God! But what, um, what could possibly? But yeah, we, we watched yeah. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, I must admit, I say um, I watched the antelope burn. Uh, sorry, I watched uh, it's Miss Ardent because she took our station once we got hit. Uh, and then she got hit um, and that set a massive fire off and, and she sunk. So during the night, we watched her um, sort of glowing uh, and then um, sink. And then the next, well, two days later was when the antelope um, broke her back and sunk. Yeah, um, yeah. And then, yeah, and I was thinking, you know, when, when I joined the Navy in 78, I thought, uh, get around there, see the world, um, get out of Northern Ireland yeah. and uh, get away from all this war and troubles. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know, four years later, it's, it's out of the, it's out of the frying out of the frying pan <laughs> into the fire. Exactly. Yeah, I've only ever been on a Royal Navy ship once in my life, and that was um, when I was in Special Branch in London. Um, a mate of mine got uh, his 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 brother-in-law, I believe, was chief petty officer on HMS Exeter, and it's Type Forty Two destroyer. Uh-huh. So, uh, so we got invited. Um, so he said to me and another another lad on the on the team on the. Um, on the operations team said, oh, would you fancy a day on HMS Exeter? And we can just bullshit and say that we're going to be um, liaising with naval, <laughs> naval intelligence. <Yeah. laughs> but, but in truth, we're just going to be on the piss yeah. on, the, on the ship all day. Yeah. So, uh, so said, oh yeah, definitely. I'd love to do that. Never been on a Royal Navy ship before. So we, um, we went off to Gravesend um, where I naively uh, thought that we would be, um, you know, stepping from the, um, you know, the dock or the, whatever the harbor wall on yeah. the side onto the side of the ship uh r- wrong yeah um we were, <laughs> we, were, we were dressed in our suits and ties and slippy leather soled shoes and uh, we got onto the pilot's boat at gravesend and taken away out into the thames estuary and it was really choppy and we were up and down and uh not none of us were all old bill you know yeah got, yeah having a bloody clue what we're doing done, done nothing about boats whatsoever so we eventually s- saw the ship you know big gray hulking thing sat in the middle of the thames estuary uh, which is basically the sea isn't it really i think it is and, yeah and yeah. um and uh we then approached the, the ship and they threw down a bloody cargo net didn't they uh, yeah. down, the, down, the, <laughs> down the side of the ship so uh so I, I said, well, how, how are we going to get on the boat? And he said, you're going to have to climb up. Climb. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there was, there's us in our suits and ties and, and, um, and slippy shoes trying to climb up this bloody rope ladder up the side <laughs> of the ship 
in the ship pitching around in this choppy seas. It's something I'd never done before. It was bloody terrifying. Yeah. And um, and obviously, and I'm sure you've done it loads of times, but you know, when you try and put your feet into the rope, it's right flat against the side of the ship, isn't yes, it? Yes, exactly. So have, yeah. So you have to reach down and pull yeah. the rope forward so you can get your foot into it, you yeah. know. And there's no safety rope, yeah. something like that. I mean, <laughs> I mean, if we'd fallen off, we probably would have yeah. killed ourselves yeah. or drowned or both, yeah. you know. And um, but anyway, we spent the day on the ship, and the thing that really struck me about it was just how bloody, um, unbelievably claustrophobic these, Definitely. these, these ships yeah. are. Yeah. Unbelievable. And um, and we ended up spending most of the day drinking. Um, and the the ship went up. I mean, it was fascinating. We got a proper guided tour of the ship. Um, I'm sure the cap. We got introduced to the captain. I'm sure he was pissed. Uh, when, when he when he came to meet us on the helicopter yeah. landing deck and um and we went up all the way up the thames and we pulled in alongside hms Belfast. yes yeah and yeah. um it was absolutely brilliant day but i've got to say oh my god they can drink can't they well yeah up in the chief's mess um well, i think everybody can yeah yeah <laughs> well you, we used to get three cans of beer per uh, per man per day Really, um, and that—that's all you were sort of meant to be allowed. But when you were at sea, we used to um, sort of—you probably might not have drunk the three cans. Yeah. Um, so you, you would hide them somewhere, so that we always had what they call a channel night. So when we're coming back in if you've been deployed. Yeah. You would have loads of beer and have a bit of a party, uh, and the regulators sort of turned a bit of a blind eye to it. Mm. Um, and then when you were alongside, uh, obviously a lot of the lads were um, what they call RA. Um, mm. They were married and, and they were in the Murray quarters, etc. So they were still getting their three cans of beer to, um, per day. Um, so again, you would store all them up. Uh. Um, and uh, yeah, we used to have um, some good parties down there. Well, and I if just... you, sorry, 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 no, go. On. I was just going to say, and if someone came, if you invited someone into the mess, then um, it was like a, an unwritten rule that you give them one of your cans of beer. So it, it being that, you know, we had some lads down and um, they were just, you know, 20, 30 cans of beer in front of them. And it was right, you're not leaving until you supped them. Um, <laughs> oh and I've seen, I've seen some messy um, people oh, trying to get up the, well, get up the I, ladders to get well, ashore. I, I disgraced myself in the end. I don't mind admitting um, I disgraced myself in the end because I was so drunk that I ended up spewing up uh, into this massive <laughs> shell casing in, yeah. the, in, the, in the in the petty officer's mess. Yeah. Um, and it was like a massive shell casing. It must have been about four, four foot tall yeah. and about almost a foot wide. It was massive. And I ended up spewing into it. And um and I and I didn't realise that that's where they kept their tea bags for the oh for the, god. <laughs> so I was escorted uh, politely escorted yeah. off the ship at that stage and depo deposited at London Bridge. Yeah. Where, do, you, do you remember? Do you remember that scene? Have you ever seen the film with um, French? Is it French Connection? Um, you know the with the what's that? Is that film nineteen? 1970s cop film i'm sure it's french connection uh, yeah and um and is it is it oh god i'm terrible at the names of actors but there's a scene when he's staggering around he's obviously been drugged by the baddies they've obviously pumped, <laughs> a, pumped him full of heroin or something yeah. and he's staggering around and there's cars screeching to a halt and all this kind of stuff well that was me at london bridge you know? <laughs> 
I've I've seen that many a time on Royal Navy ships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We anyway. we uh, we went alongside. Uh, I was on HMS Kent, which was a big uh, county class destroyer, uh, and we done that. We went up the Thames, uh, and we've um, tied up alongside the Belfast. So we had uh, some good photographs of that. Still got them. Yeah. Oh, it was fantastic. Yeah. It was a fantastic day, but uh, it was very messy. It ended badly mm-hmm. for me, you know. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> memorable. But listen, um, we could yeah. talk all day about yeah. all of that kind of stuff. But um, it is fascinating, and, uh, and I'm really pleased actually that we've got you on immediately after Adrian because you know the Falklands connection and everything. It's a very poignant time, isn't it? But. So, so obviously you leave the Navy. Uh, what year do you leave the Navy? Well, um, I left um, full-time in uh, 86, but I went straight into the Royal Navy Reserve in Manchester. So I've done that to 1990. Um, so um, in total, done like 12 years. Oh, um, quite a long time, though. Yeah, so 12 years sort of um, patientable service, for, mm-hmm. for want of a better sort of phrase. Yeah, but I settled in Manchester then. Right. Okay. Um, so uh, yes, um, met a Manchester girl. Um, one of my mates in the in the navy was from Manchester. So we used to come up to his house at weekends. Right. Um, and then um, a friend of his girlfriend at the time um, got introduced to her, and the rest is history. As they say. Yeah. yeah as they say. So you join you join the police then. Yeah, went into. I was in doing. Um, uh, what's it called? Um, well, radio operator. I think they call them dispatch now. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah. They've got the uh, the American sort of phrase in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I was working in comms uh, in uh, um, the city centre in Boodle Street uh-huh. with GMP, and then from there I went into um, the, the scenes of crime. Right. Um, I had a passion a bit for photography, right. so I was, I was able to sort of put that down as uh, one of the disciplines they were looking for. Right. It, uh, it was a time when they had a, a big recruitment into, um, what, as they called the den scenes of crime, where a lot of the the the, the officers, um, the police officers, DCs used to do the the um, the soccer work. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it was when they were transitioning it all towards um, police staff. Right. Um, so in the office, um, most of the supervisors were um, D, DSs, mm-hmm. um, but they started to bring in. Uh, police supervisor, uh, police staff supervisors, um, and then most of the, um, uh, say, the staff itself was uh, big recruitment into um, the police sort of staff side. Um, the officers, a lot of them were retiring, and once that retired, then they weren't filling them with um, police officers. Um, so over a couple of years, it mm-hmm. sort of basically weeded themselves out. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, um, uh, well, GMP anyway. Um, it, it's, I think it's probably 100% um, police staff in the um, scientific sort of CSI world now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but when I joined, it was probably half and half, mm-hmm. uh, or if, if probably a lot more police officers. Yeah. Um, but um, so and in a way, be, uh, it's going to be really interesting. This because really, you've you started at a time when it was probably pretty old school in terms of very old school. The, the capabilities, yeah. I suppose, for want of a better word, the capabilities yeah. of a crime scene investigator were, I would imagine, and I'll let you t- describe that um, rather than me guessing. But I imagine they were fairly rudimentary, um, and things have just come on unbelievably since then haven't they definitely um and you've, you've got your advances now obviously in, in dna and looking for trace evidence um uh, but when i first started uh, back in 97 um, um you know you, you were looking for if you found blood or whatever um it seems um you, 
it, it was a case of you, you were able to say what um, uh, if it was a a plus or a or b. Um, that that was the only sort of profiling we were doing because mm-hmm. uh, DNA was just starting to come in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we first started to do the DNA, you needed quite a lot of blood to get a profile. Mm-hmm. But obviously now um, you've got touch DNA mm-hmm. where you can swab a, a handle after someone's you know opened a door and you'll get a full profile of it mm-hmm. because it's, it's advanced so much. Um, and and likewise with the equipment that we were using, um, you know, there'd be two or three powders that you lose for, for fingerprints. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't um, recover a lot that went off to the lab for the chemical treatment mm-hmm. because, again, that was just starting to get... Um, advanced with a super glue uh, etc mm-hmm. um and um you know some as you said before that you know some of the, the the cops in there um they were just in there for the last five years waiting for the pension um and they tried to make themselves you know a nice little cushy number yeah yeah, yeah. um and uh, it did sort of I, I noticed that there was a massive change um as they say as the equipment and the advances sort of came in there and you were getting stuff that were going in there that was now going to make that their career. Yeah. Um, and be- because of that, you know, they were putting 100% into it. Yeah. They knew that they may be able to rise up uh, that sort of into a senior CSI, into supervisory roles, yeah. and possibly up into the management. Whereas a lot of the DCs, as I said before, were just coming in to, to finish their, their, their time. Time serving, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so they were like um, police officers in the um the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. um so and again policing changed throughout them years as well mm-hmm. you know um so um i think honestly uh, my view is i think it, it was it was the right thing to do was to bring um more professionals in that yeah. wanted to to use yeah. it as a career yeah um although don't get me wrong with some cracking cops in there yeah um but with some lazy ones as well yeah um and you know some would go into a house and they'd have a look and go wow there's glove marks and walk straight back out again yeah um whereas we would go in and say well there might be glove mark but let's have a look around for something else Mm. any fibers any glass you know footwear um but a lot of the times they were in the old school that would if there's no fingerprints there's nothing we can do Yeah, yeah yeah um uh, so you're, in those about. early days then, um, when you first started out, um, it was pr- would you be sent to pretty much anything? Yeah, we um, it was a nine week course that we had to go on. That was run by um, the National Training Centre for Scientific Support, and that was uh, run from uh, County Durham. Mm-hmm. Durham Constabulary had the um, sort of uh, the main training centre. Uh, and we'd done a nine weeks course, a living in course. Three weeks was um, through with photography, three weeks fingerprints, and three weeks general uh, trace evidence work. Mm-hmm. And then there was a, a pass or fail at the end. Um, and it was a bit like your, your probation uh, in the police, whereas you then came back and you put, you went out with a mentor, um, and then you put into practice what, uh, what you learned. Um, nice. And then after a while, then you were out independent going mm-hmm. to to all the jobs um and you know when i first came back um and started working i was over in, in sort of east manchester um and um a couple of the first sort of jobs that are really did a uh, big jobs we say big jobs um we had uh, harold shipman which right. was obviously uh, he was killing off all his um 
uh, as patients. And, um, we've done the exhumations. Um, and then uh, the, the next sort of big job I'd done was a young um, 18 year old girl who was murdered. Um, and then she was uh, cut up in a bath. And we found her head and arms in, in plastic bags and her trunk and her legs in a, a sports bag. Oh um, and then the, the next sort of murder I dealt with was a, a young Asian girl who um, again was murdered um, and they tried cutting her head off, mm. but just the, the, the blade didn't, it was uh, curved too much. Right. So although he's cut through the throat, it didn't cut the skin at the back of the head. Right. So I got turned out to that. I was on call and got turned out to it. And I'm thinking, you know, oh, my God, what have I left myself in for here? Oh, I know. Um, but it, it wasn't all as bad and as gory as that. Because, um, But that they were the sort of the, the first couple of ma- so, major scenes I'd ever dealt with. So there's... There's so much. There's so much in what you just said there. Um, yeah, we could, probably, we could probably do a whole podcast just on what you've said in the last thirty seconds there. But so let's just go back a bit, back to Harold Shipman then. So um, that's obviously a massive. That was a massive inquiry, wasn't it? And uh, forgive me, I can't remember how many people he was convicted of killing, but it was many, many people. Wasn't yeah, it? well, he got convicted of fifteen. Um, that's, that's all they took to court. 13 of them we exhumed and two um, had um, been um, uh, cremated, but with enough evidence for, we found on his computer, etc., cetera, uh, to go ahead with uh, the um, convictions um, or the prosecution, I should say. Um, but we, we reckon there was probably about 200 names up on the, um, the incident room, on the boards around the incident room. Right. of who, who we believe he, he may have uh, killed as well. I think it was at the time they, they, they took a sort of decision that they weren't going to, um, there was a sort of cut off mm. um, where they were going and, and, and obviously yeah. they had that cut off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But um, we say so we exhumed um, 13. Um, I exhumed three of those bodies with, okay. um, uh, with a crime scene manager. Um, and then... Um, went through for the postmortems. We'd done the postmortems on them. Um, and we then were getting the, um, the, the bodies back into to new coffins and then getting them buried again within 24 hours. Okay. So with, with us getting, we were, we're going in the early hours of the morning, um, in the hours of darkness um, and getting the, um, the, 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 the bodies out. Right. So just to sort of go, just a couple of sort of health warnings here for anybody who's listening. Um, we're going to be discussing as, as you know, clearly we're going to be discussing some fairly distressing things here. Um, I think I make that very clear in the in the notes of the podcast, as well as my introduction, you know, to every podcast. But um, I, I, I think the reality is that there's no easy way to talk about some of this stuff. And so if people are uncomfortable with this sort of subject matter, it's probably better that they don't, you know, listen any further. Yeah. However, I, I think it's incredibly important that people understand the the reality of, of, of the job that you and people like you do and and the the fact that um it has you know we'll come on to talk about that as well that it had that inevitably has an impact on on people as well so so that that said um and again i suppose the other thing i'd, I'd add would be that um you know we, we will always we're always incredibly mindful of the fact that the people that we talk about, the cases that we talk about, and we'll be talking about more of this stuff during this conversation, involve you know the the deaths, the loss of of of, of much loved, um, you know, family members, you know, brothers, sisters, children, etc. So this is not about um, you know, this is not about a girlish 
entertainment or sort of you know trying to gross people out this is just about talking about real world stuff i just i just felt yeah. it's important to say that you know no, yeah um so the exhumations then what what exactly does that involve then so obviously you need to obviously have that conversation with the family first i would imagine obviously yeah they, they were they were um all made aware of what we were doing mm-hmm. um and then um when uh, obviously we had the senior investigating officer um the sio and, and the crime scene manager uh we had um a home office pathologist that was sort of allocated uh, to the role of of um the, the inquiry um uh, and we had um uh, another company on board that was doing the sort of um the digging for what of a better phrase mm-hmm. um down to to the to the bodies um and then what we were doing is as a csis that were allocated to it we um we would meet up it was around about half past three in the morning the exhumation usually take place about four o'clock Mm. um we tried to do it as dark as we could um obviously for for press and and stuff like that mm-hmm. um and um we would uh, get down to it um they would start digging down we would then take soil samples from above where the uh, the deceased was um from the the clay at each side of the where the deceased was and then once we got the deceased out we were taking soil samples from underneath and what that uh, primarily was for was we believed that uh, shipman was um drugging um the uh, the victims yeah. using diamorphine um and what we didn't want was the defense to say that if we found diamorphine within the body then it could have seeped in right through um through the clay uh, and into to the the coffins itself mm-hmm. um obviously um when you when you're dealing with forensics and uh, you, you're dealing with facts all the time um and um you've got to make sure that if you're saying that um you know we found dna or we found uh, some drugs in there you've got to make sure that the defense can come in and negate what you're trying to say that yeah. you know we're saying it's in the body so that we had um sort of strategy set out of what mm-hmm. we're going to do uh, everything was photographed them uh, as uh, at each stage um the the bodies were then put into body bags um or in in some cases we were able to get the whole coffin out right. but in some of them they've been and buried just out, of, just out of curiosity and i'm not asking this you know out of sort of a sense of titillation or anything i'm just i'm just cur- curious how, how long are we talking about that these um uh, bodies have been in the ground are we talking months are we talking years the first one that i assumed had only been in the body uh, only been in the ground about four and a half months right um and then uh, the, the the third one that i did she was uh, me buried for just over four years right so there was complete difference between them the one um only four months um you know um there, there was hardly any decomposition of the body itself and mm. um, there's a little bit on the face but but nothing at all mm. um whereas the one that was buried for four years i was expecting to be full skeletal but she wasn't right. um she still had a lot of skin on her right. all her internal organs were still there etc so yeah it was fascinating that way yeah um yeah yeah and to see what we actually found oh mate Mm. Neck. I mean, well, we're, I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, oh, my God, um, rather you than me, frankly. I mean, I'm like, this is the whole thing, isn't it? This is what people just don't understand. Well, maybe they do understand, mm. but um, you can talk about these things in a very sort of clinical way. Um, but I know and you know that uh, doing this kind of stuff um, does not come without its risks in terms of, 
you know, the psychological impact on the people having to do it. I mean, how did, I mean, everyone's different. That's suppose, yeah. the first, the first thing I'd say about that, because, you know, some people can do these things without, without batting an eyelid, other people, you know, struggle. So where are you on that? Are you, have you always been the sort of person who can do that kind of stuff and, and remain very sort of emotionally detached from it? Um, I would probably say yes. However, sometimes it does get you a little bit. Um, I must admit that um, after the, the first um, exhumation, uh, exhumation, when uh, the lady was reburied, I went round the next day and, and put flowers on her grave mm. um, because um, it sort of hit me a little bit that mm. my, my dad had only been been dead um, five months as it was, um, and um, we're now you know going and um, you know exhuming this body and um, put her back in again, and I thought well. Uh, I'll go and put some flowers on there because she's probably that that's the sort of same state as my dad might sort of been in. Mm, um, mm. But, but for coping, um, I think um, I've got a good family back, um, you know, support. Um, mm. the, the missus knew when to speak to me, when not to speak to me. Yeah. Um, when I came in from work, you know, um, I didn't talk a lot about it um, with her and she mm. didn't ask too many questions. Mm. um because she knew that you know sometimes i wouldn't want to speak about it um but uh just going back on on the um the sort of the welfare sort of side um how it's changed over you know the last 30 years um on that one um one of the 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 di's uh detective inspectors that was on the other uh, case he obviously had an action to come and check on our welfare mm. Um, but he was from the old school. Again, he had almost 30 years service in. In fact, I think he had over 30 years service in. Um, and uh, we always remember he came into the, um, the, the soccer office um, and his phrase that he used was, um, do any of you sad bastards need counselling? You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and of course, everybody goes, no, 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 no. And that was it. So he, he obviously got a t he wrote his action up, whatever, you know, have liaise with CSIs, a soco, and everyone's fine. I mean, I'm well, laughing. I'm laughing, but I'm well, not you, laughing. You know it yourself, you know don't I mean? you? I'm, exactly. I'm laughing because, because it's funny, yeah. but, but equally, it's just like, it's, the, it's like it's like that story I was told by a bloke who was in the SAS who, who described his uh, regimental sergeant major. If somebody went in with a welfare issue into his office, um, he would take out two bottles of pills and one <laughs> on one bottle of pills there was a little sticker saying there there yeah. and, and on the other bottle of pills there was a there was a sticker saying man the fuck up <laughs> yeah and uh, and there was smarties in the in the in the pill bottles and they'd listen to what they had to say and then they'd, they'd either get a there there smarty or they'd get a man the fuck up <laughs> smarty you know what i mean and it's funny isn't it but the reality yeah. the reality is that there are people who who really genuinely need a bit more than that you know definitely yeah 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 well i think in a way then because that was one of the as i say the first main jobs that i ever dealt with uh, anything that that is sort of picked up after that um it didn't really affect me um mm. but um yeah it's um it is a bit strange some of some, you know some people uh, or some of the the, the the um csis i've worked with over the past um uh, it had affected that has affected them mm. affected mm. them in later years um and um i, I think it's, it's because of that back in and in the, the they, when they first started their career as well, there wasn't the sort of welfare support that there is today. Mm. Um, and I think they, they've recognised that uh, throughout the whole of policing, mm. not just for, for CSIs, but, you know, for, for police officers as well. 
because mm. you know you, you look at some of the stuff that maybe traffic officers come across mm. uh, after you know a major fatal rta picking bits and pieces up off a motorway no, it's uh, but, but there's never anything for them um you know and kind of terrorism officers mm. in the 70s 80s 90s in london you know with the murders that was going on there with the bombings and, and shootings etc oh, again yeah. there was you know it wasn't seen as all oh, right we've got yeah, to get yeah. welfare in there Whereas yeah, yeah. now it is obviously, which we'll probably yeah. come on to. It's a yeah, big thing. yeah, it'd be interesting to see what you think, what you have to, what your thoughts are around all of that. Uh, I've got my own views on that, and and I and I and I don't know what the answer is to this, but it feels to me a little bit that as the as the organisation has become um, uh, more, for want of a better word, politically correct. Yeah. The greater the mental health crisis has become in policing and i and i don't know if there's a if there's a direct link to that but it feels to me that in the days when we just used to take the piss out of each other like really brutally brutal mm. i mean it was you got you didn't get as my wife would say you didn't get the lickings of a dog <laughs> from, from the people who you worked with because they would just slaughter you and 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 it was all fun. It was all done in good fun and jest. Yeah, yeah. And and everybody took it in the spirit that it was meant. Um, but we had a we laughed our heads off um, because there was that decompression when you came back from something that was truly dreadful. Um, whereas now it feels to me as if the more politically correct the organisation has become, the more unable people are to deal with the bad stuff I'm not, and i don't know i'm not a psychologist so i know that probably sounds i don't know no but i think it's it's because of who's um joining up now as well um you know you're getting people that, that are joining the job either cops or csis um in their 20s um in their early early 20s um so they they don't know about the sort of the, the old times um for want of a better phrase and how we coped then Mm. They've only ever known um, that uh, it's wrong to sort of take the piss. That's the way a lot of the times that they, I think anyway, that they see it is mm. that if, if you are taking the piss, then, oh, um, you shouldn't be saying that. You shouldn't be doing that. They can't see the, um, the sort of side that we saw, mm. you know, years ago. Um, and and I do think there is a line. Obviously, there's a line where taking the piss and, and um, yeah. you know, uh, where people have got, uh, may have some sort of uh, mental health uh, problems, um, yeah. but I, I think it's it's the it's the whole culture from the last twenty years of mm. how the, of society itself, mm. um, the, the sort of claim the blame and claim society. Yeah, um, and I think that's now coming into to, to policing. Oh, you know, it came, I, in, I, came in a long time ago. I'm afraid. Yeah, mm. yeah. Well, I, I know some um, some people that um, uh, well they, they retire from from the job. Um, with PTSD, etc., and they swung the lead, you yeah, know, to yeah, to yeah. get an early pension. Yeah, um, yeah, and yeah. Um, you know, uh, it, it it's, it's it's happening all the time. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, most of, a lot of what a lot of people say to me. I mean, I know we've gone off on a bit of a tangent here. Yeah, but I think no, it's, yeah. it's a, it's a tangent that's worth going off on. Is a lot of people say to me either informally um, in conversation or. You know, they send me messages. I get a lot of, I get an awful lot of messages via, uh, you know, regarding the podcast and regarding my book and whatnot. And a lot of people say, 
it's not the things that they deal with at work that stress them out. It's the organization. Mm. It's, yeah. the, it's the nature of the organization. That's what's really stressing people out. And, you know, it's this blame culture and, um, you know, a feeling that the organization says the right words. You know, the words are, we will look after you, blah, blah, blah. We care about your welfare, blah, blah, blah. But the actions of the organization do not, you know, mm. reflect that, I suppose. But anyway, yeah. We're, it's sorry, just, yeah. We're, 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 we could talk all day about that. <laughs> yeah, we went um, off. You know, it's one to cover over a few pints, or whatever. Um, yeah. So going back to a couple of the other jobs that you described, those horrific murders, sort of dismemberment murders, I would imagine in those days, um, you know, like a lot of people when you see that stuff for the first time um it, it, i imagine it must come as a, as a as a dreadful shock when you walk into those type of incidents for the first time do they yeah um f- f- to be honest uh the, the woman i mentioned about the young uh, the young girl um the the crime scene manager i had uh, at the time with me a very very experienced um, he was um, a former police officer, got injured on duty, and then came into the um, sort of CSI side. Um, uh, and I think it's because you had um, such a, an experienced person there um, and sort of talked you through it. Um, it was a case of, right, this is what we're, we're looking for. Um, this, and unfortunately, the young girl had been caught up inside and she'd put into uh, black bin bags mm. and a sports um, um, hold all. Uh, and in the back garden, there was um, the backyard, there was, um, I think it was 11 um, bin bags. Um, so we had to go through each one. Right. Um, and it was by going through it and, and, and knowing that you had to do it uh, methodically and do it right. Um, because at the end of the day, you want to make sure you got a conviction at the end. Mm-hmm. I think that overrides a lot of your sort of fears of what, what's actually in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we did open one of the bags and we found her arms, that, uh, and then between her arms was um, uh, another plastic bag with her head inside it. Oh, we were, you, you're ready for it. Um, so it was a case of like, well, this is what we're going to do now. The, the strategy is do, 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 do. So you just sort of got on with it. Um, but I do think it was because um, of the, the experience of other people, that, especially in, the, in my younger sort of service, mm-hmm. that's what sort of helped you get through it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it, it was one of those where um, it, the, 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 the crime itself, um, it was, it was a friend. It was a, a, a best friend's boyfriend that actually um, that done the murder and then he was on his sort of toes um and it, so it wasn't a, a a random sort of murder yeah and um, yeah. we knew straight away or we knew relatively yeah. um quickly um who may be responsible yeah um and it, it took a few days before he actually got locked up because i say he's on his toes yeah, yeah, well yeah. Uh, i think um, because of the way the um investigation was running um, it was a lot easier than if it was just a, a random sort of murder and mm-hmm. we had no idea who it was. And I think, you'll, you'll, you know, you'll know yourself from investigating um, serious crimes. Sometimes mm-hmm. things just all fall into place and it mm-hmm. makes it easy yeah. um, and then makes your life easy and the, the um, especially the forensic sort of side, recovery mm-hmm. easy. Mm-hmm. But then there's other times when you've yeah. no idea what you're doing um, or where, which directions to sort of go and you, yeah. it's a lot harder. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it, how how things have changed, because the, the period of time that you're describing really um, 
the the forensic side of things i mean the forensic side of things is still incredibly important obviously but um the the digital forensic side of things now is as important as definitely the, as the sort of uh, biometric know, side yeah biometric side of things yeah um and and i've said this before and said again i firmly believe whilst i do think the police service in the uk is in a dreadful mess um and you know we've looked at the dreadful outcome rates for crime at the moment i do think when it comes to serious crime particularly things like murders and um you know complex criminal conspiracies it's almost impossible to get away with it now almost impossible um because of a combination of the advances in in forensic science and digital forensics digital is the big thing now uh, and I will probably come on to it um, uh, as we go through here. But um, I, I've noticed over the over the years, um, and especially in the CT world, mm-hmm. um, is that you know uh, the, the sort of strategies now is forget about the biometric, or not so much forget about the biometrics, but they're further down the strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas get in there, get the computers, get the phones, mm-hmm. and then from that we've got the digital footprint where they've mm-hmm. been. Mm-hmm. um cell site analysis etc mm-hmm. whereas we fear biometrics it may only attribute the mobile phone to someone yeah or it may you know you, you could put somebody in that scene yeah. but that's as much as you can do with your biometrics yeah, yeah, whereas yeah. now with your digital yeah, yeah. you can plot yeah. the whole um, yeah, yeah. course of where yeah, yeah. where they've been yeah painting that picture of a, of a complex um conspiracy over time yeah, uh, and multiple locations now is, yeah. is is incredibly compelling, isn't it? To be able to definitely paint yeah. that picture, paint that picture to a jury, um, you know, using some of the more sophisticated software of the sort of companies that I've done work for since leaving the police mm. is is incredibly compelling. And uh, yeah, and it's it's just getting better and better all the time. It is, yeah, it? yeah. You know, you look at at, mobile, uh, at cars now. You know, in, in the past, you'd never even consider um, doing any forensics on a car, uh, digital forensics. Mm. But, you know, most cars now, the newer cars over the last five, six years, whatever, um, you can stick um, a computer into uh, into it and get a full diagnostic download. And yeah. then from that, it can tell how many miles it's done. And mm. sometimes in the, on the sat-nav, mm. you know, you get that sat-nav and, and you can start plotting um, right. where, where the person's been. Right. Um, and it's 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 just it's I don't know where it's going to take us, but it's 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 just mad now. You know your watches, your your Apple watches. It's got all your details in there. Um, That's right. Well, there was that you, story, wasn't there, um, about that poor um, PCSO um, in murder, and she was uh, was it uh, Julia James um killed in in kent and yes and, yeah and he just fairly, got convicted didn't he that's right yeah, yeah. and there was there was the, the thing that really caught my eye with that i mean it's a tragic case obviously um was that they extracted data from her 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 fit fitness yeah. fitness watch which had shown the moment that she was being attacked where her heart rate went exactly from, yeah yeah went, went from sort of i don't know 70 odd or something right up to over 140 uh-huh. almost, almost instantaneously i mean that's a that's a chilling. I mean, it's exactly. a br- it's a brilliant piece of evidence, isn't it? it? Time of death and all the rest of it, and putting people there, and you know, you, and then from that you can level your, your CCTV, who's in the area, cell site analysis, etc. Yeah, it, it's absolutely fantastic if mm. you've got that exact time of death. But as you say, it's so chilling as well, yeah. and especially for the families, uh, etc. 
Yeah, there was um, another another great example. Um, I can't remember where the where the job was. I, I, I might have been might have been Leicestershire somewhere. There was a guy who had um, uh, he killed his partner. Um, I'm probably gonna I'm probably gonna torture the facts here, but <laughs> but the but the point the point is that um, his his Apple Watch had a um, uh, sort of a what is it accelerate it, it, it measures your height as well as distance so in other words if you go up uh, yes. and it, 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 elevation yeah elevation that's it yeah oh, sorry no, it, elevation as well as as distance and it could it could actually detect the point at which he had climbed the loft ladder yeah to, i think to either hide something or retrieve something from the loft just yeah. either before or after she was killed, yeah. you know, which was again a fantastic, mass, yeah. Service, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> definitely, yeah. And then, as we said, there, you know, you've got the tangents off that. Then, what else you can sort of look for from it? Yeah, yeah. But so, um, so so going so looking yeah. at you, so you're obviously um, doing all these unbelievably uh, complex but incredibly important, um, you know, uh, scene examinations. Which I would imagine uh, link the uh, ultimate, you know, suspect and offender to the crime and achieve convictions. So I imagine that must must be very satisfying whenever whenever you a piece of your evidence that you've retrieved actually, you know, yeah, results in that. Definitely, and and but it's not all um, sort of major crime, you know. Uh, it, our bread and butter stuff as a CSI is your burglaries. Um, and your car crime and, and, and it's just as, as good getting your piece of evidence there uh, and getting the conviction as it is on, on a major crime as well um, and and another sort of um, uh, incident I can remember where it was one tiny, tiny piece of evidence that we managed to convict on uh, and it was pollen um, from, uh, from a field where uh, we found a young girl who had been um, strangled with her own bra Mm. semi-naked um, and it ended up it was her boyfriend that had done it mm. um, but um, the only thing we could uh, get on him sort of forensically um, was uh, pollen because mm. um, they had sex the night before um, so any DNA um, any semen etc that were recovered from the body which we did do related back to him but he was able to say well we had sex so um, there was nothing to suggest there was any uh, sexual assault in that. Um, but uh, what he did say was that um, uh, on walking back to her house, they had a big argument. She's walked off on her own. He's walked back to his flat um, and then she's found dead the next morning. Um, so I was tasked to go to his flat um, and recover his clothing uh, and recover and I recovered a mat as you walk into the house as well. And on that, we found pollen. That related to the pollen on the um, the deceased, right. So the only sort of forensic evidence that we had was um, where the forensic scientist um, that, that deals with pollen, uh, Pat Wilshire, was able to give evidence that the pollen that I recovered in the flat and the pollen under the the body um, that was recovered from the body was exactly the same. Right. And then she went in to explain how pollen works, how it evolves over hours. Um, and, and, and all the rest of that, which obviously way above my head. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Um, she was able to um, say to the jury is that he or his clothing was at that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and then because, because of, the degree, of that, because of the degree to which the pollen would have, the pollen was, of yes. changed in its sort of structure. Or exactly. Whatever. Right. 
and he said he wasn't down that that sort of walkway. Um, and it was it was a bit of a but where she lived, there was a little bit of a sort of wood behind it, and and that's where her body was found uh, through this wooded area. Um, but the the defence, the the only defence that they could try and come up with was to do with contamination, mm-hmm. that we had somehow contaminated the evidence that I'd recovered. Mm. Um, because I say that's the only thing that, um, that we were putting the the, um, the, the murder on. Um, so I was cross-examined in Crown Court over it to the extent that they brought the exhibits in and I had to show how they were um, packaged, etc. Mm-hmm. But um, they, they, they asked me how were they packaged beforehand, so I explained everything to them and then they brought the, the exhibits in so they could see it themselves. And it's that split second when the exhibit officer's gone to get the exhibit, when you sort of doubt yourself yeah. that you've just stood in Crown Court, you've yeah. explained all this for about two hours yeah. and now they're going to bring this in and it might be wrong. Oh, and that's when man. your arse is sort of twitching a bit. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But as it was, they brought it in and we were able to go through in the packaging, etc. And we got the conviction. Um, and and that was that was probably of, of all the the um, apart from the arena, but from all a lot of the the, the scenes where I've given evidence, um, that was probably one of the best ones that, that was satisfying, because I say we had, we had nothing else on them apart from the um, uh, the, the pollen. It's a fantastic fantastic achievement, and and I think the unsung heroes in a lot of this uh, are are the people who the scientists at the forensic science service, you know, who do an amazing job, and and there's some unbelievably clever people there who are uh, fantastically knowledgeable about. And what always interests me about this stuff is that there are experts on pretty much everything out Definitely. there, aren't there? You know, exactly. Doesn't yes. matter what it is, yeah. whether it's it's a bit of rubber. Yeah, or whether it's a stamp, yeah, yeah, or whether it's a maggot glue. We we had a, an expert in glue, and <laughs> <laughs> he was able to to tell us all about these different bits of glue that we recovered at a scene. And the, yeah, yeah, it's just amazing. Yeah. I mean, how do you, so? Just on that one, if you've got a, I don't know, let's let's say a particular pencil. Okay, and it's probably a crap example, but I'll use that anyway. Um, or a piece of wood or whatever. And, and you think, right, this is really critical. For whatever reason, it becomes really pertinent to the investigation. It's a piece of something that's been recovered from the scene that you think is, is significant. And you need to try and get someone who is super knowledgeable about that subject. Where, where do you start with that? Well, what we um, normally would do is uh, you'd sit down, you'd have your forensic strategy meeting. Um, and they'd be with the, the, the SIO, WSIO, forensic manager, et cetera. And you go through all your sort of evidence and then what's going to be, uh, what you believe to be important, et cetera. And then that's when you'd be looking at, right, what we're going to get from this. Um, is it going to be DNA? And that's when I'd be then talking to um, the, the scientists from uh, the forensic um, service providers. Mm-hmm. In the past, we had the old forensic science service, mm-hmm. which was government run, but now it's all private. Uh, but from them, um, there's a register um, of where you can sort of go to. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also uh, the NCA, the, the uh, National Crimes um, Agency. They've got um, a sort of um, a register as well of uh, expert witnesses. So I'd be putting the phone call into them. I'd be asking, this is what we, we've got this. Who or what do you think we could do with it to mm-hmm. try and prove what we want to try and prove. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then from then, names come into it. Um, but you, you tend to get, um, when you've worked with one sort of expert, um, 
you, 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 when you get a bit of a rapport with them. Um, I had one to do with uh, handwriting uh, years ago on a job. Uh, and then any time I had any handwriting uh, analysis to be done, he would be my first port of call. Right. Um, and then it'd be a case of, um, well, if he couldn't help, who could help? Mm-hmm. And then it would sort of like you give all their names in there and then you'd sit down and you start going through it all. Yeah. But uh, a lot of the, the stuff is... Um, it, it falls back into the sort of chemistry, where, like we mentioned about the glue before. Mm. So the person that was dealing with that for me was a chemist from um, one of the forensic science providers. Now, um, not only he doesn't just deal with glue on a permanent basis, he deals with a number of things, mm. but primarily what he'll look back at is the chemical breakdown of the right. different types of glue. Uh-huh. And then it's that that he reports on. Right. So although you might have four different bits of glue recovered, and th- this is what w- was happening uh, at a scene, and we, were, we weren't too sure what type of glue it was, he was able to go through the um, chemical sort of breakdown hmm. and give us the exact um, uh, sort of uh, substance we were after. Yeah. And then that was able to link us back to someone who yeah, linked yeah. it back to the court. Yeah. So, and then the, and the, other, the other thing I was just think, sitting there thinking, the other sort of the unsung heroes in a lot of this stuff as well is, I mean, there's obviously you guys who who do the fantastically skilled job of retrieving um, evidence from crime scenes and handling it in a way that is going to negate that suggestion of contamination and all of that stuff. Uh, and then you've got your sort of, uh, expert witnesses um, around the world. A lot of these people aren't they? It's not just yep. in the UK. You have very often you have to go to the other side of the world to get one of yep. those people, don't you? Um, but the other ones for me really are the the people who do that and unbelievably uh, la- laborious searching. Very often, isn't it? So you've got officers who will uh, search a crime scene or it doesn't even necessarily have to be a crime scene. We'll use an example. So I remember a terrorist inquiry I worked on many years ago where, uh, we knew that one of the suspects had, uh, traveled on a bus. Um, and the, the, the nature of that journey was very important, um, because it would have been very sort of, um, damning for them. Um, and, uh, they were seen, discarding a bus ticket i think on cctv into a bin and then um the the action the investigative action was mm. find the bus ticket kind of, yeah and and so we had to do this all this work because there's anti-terrorist branch and they did an amazing job and they find out where uh, the bus the bin was um uh, london council a particular london council they find out that all those bins got emptied at a particular location. They then had to go through this unbelievable pile of rubbish that was probably about 10 foot high. It took them days and days and days, but they only find the bloody ticket, didn't they? Exactly. And yeah. um, and, yeah. and then they find fingerprints to yep. our man on the ticket. Exactly. And yeah. it was just like massive high fives all yep. around. You know yep. what I mean? Yeah, and it's just like fair play to you. you know? Yeah, it's good when it when it comes off. Um, it, it, after the arena, um, we know that Salman when it, when he left um, the Granby Row, the flats, uh, he went out twice with a blue suitcase and got rid of a lot of um, items from the uh, from the flat. But then he got rid of the blue suitcase as well. Now we knew the suitcase had been seen in a skip um, near Piccadilly Station where he, he ended up discarding his personal stuff and getting a cab. Um, 
but again, the action was to, to find out where that's, that skip's gone. Um, and uh, they reckon it went to a big um, uh, refuge depot called uh, Pillsworth in um, North Manchester. Um, massive landfill site. Uh, and again, decision was made, we're going to go in and, and search it and see if we can find this um, blue suitcase. Mm. Now, um, it took them 11 months to oh search my. what oh they needed to search. Um, there was uh, 11,500 tons of rubbish that oh was searched. Um, they found loads of blue suitcases, but they didn't find the blue suitcase that we were after. Oh. Um, and the joke is that the search team that was doing it, um, a lot of it was done obviously at weekends and, and, and on overtime. Um, one's got a, a nice extension built to the side of his house <laughs> called the, uh, you know, the Pillsworth extension. Um, one of the lads was driving um, um, a top of the range Mercedes and you're thinking bastards, you know, <laughs> but taking, uh, not taking anything away from them. Um, they, they done a fantastic job. Yeah. wading through tons and tons and tons i say eleven thousand ton in the end oh um, my god uh, and we we never found what we were looking for because we believe there was still some tatp might have been inside the suitcase yeah. so but it was one of those where they started it and then they would the sao had to make the decision well we've got to keep on going Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and then they kept on going and going and going and going but yeah, um, yeah. that's the problem isn't it with these sort of actions sometimes um, you, you once you've started once you've made that decision that, that you're going to do that then it's very very difficult to pull back on that isn't it and then safety as well because I say we, we believe there may have been some homemade explosives in there mm-hmm. and what we didn't want was one of the refuge drivers or whatever and you know mm-hmm. um, it, it starts turning some rubbish over and the thing goes bang and you end up with a fatality. Mm, yeah. So uh, even lower cost, uh, I don't know how much it was in the end, but it was probably, yeah. I would uh, say probably not that much short of a million quid for that just one action. Um, and this is it's, it's got to be this done. Is the thing, this is the thing that the public or the media fan point of view just just never see. They don't really understand. They don't have the first first inkling of how much work goes oh. in goes into these sort of major inquiries do they mm. particularly the C- so that segues us quite nicely actually into the ct side of things so when did you first get involved in in counterterrorism um the fir- first one was, was a job that um the uh it was still the old special branch at the time it wasn't a ct unit um up in manchester uh and they were locking someone up um and i went round to an address and i dealt with um a car that uh, belonged to the, the suspect. Mm-hmm. Um, the vehicle then was all bagged up and was taken down to the uh, explosive laboratory down in Kent. And yeah. it was down there at the time. And Fort Halstead, uh, yeah. Well, they moved now up to Porton um, Down. That's right. They moved last year. Um, but I, I went down then and I was down there for about, was about four days dealing with this vehicle, doing all the mm-hmm. swabbing for it for explosive and then for the, um, the sort of uh, biometrics in there, all the DNA, et cetera. Um, and then from then, um, because I had a good rapport with uh, people like Warren, uh, you spoke to Warren Barlow, mm-hmm. he was one of the um, special branch officers. Um, I got a good rapport going with Warren. Um, and then any other jobs that came in that required CSIs, um, I was seen to be getting the, um, the phone call. Can right. you come and help us or could you, yeah. who do we see about this or what, what should I do with this? Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, when they set up the, uh, the CTU, uh, the, the kind of terrorism unit in Manchester, 
um, they, they set up a forensic management team within there. Um, and um, that was headed up by uh, a lady called Jackie Newman. Mm. Um, now, Jackie used to be uh, one of our managers in the CSI world mm-hmm. in GMP. Um, and then as she set the unit up, she wanted a deputy. Now, at this stage, I was a senior um, crime scene manager. I had been for a number of years now, uh, and I managed um, at that stage. I was managing South Manchester, which was very busy with shootings, etc., mm-hmm. down Moss Side and things like that. So I was the the, crime, the senior down at uh, Elizabeth Slinger Road a police station. Um, so I remember she she contacted me and says, "Do you fancy coming into the CT world as as my deputy?" Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I thought, "Well, that sounds brilliant." Um, but I then sort of sat down and put the pros and cons kind of thing. Yeah. Because I loved doing what I was doing at the time. Yeah, yeah. Very, busy, it. very busy as well. It, it? it was. It was. It was massively busy. Um, and then it was a case of well, I'm going into uh, a not so busy um, unit. However, um, it's it's a new unit, uh, and uh, it's going to be part of a national sort of um, call out and etc. Yeah. Training. So um, I sort of bit the bullet, applied for it. Uh, I think there's two of us were interviewed, and, and I managed to get it. Now that was 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by the time the vetting came through, um, I joined there in um, March 2009. Right. So obviously, um, 7-7 had happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, it was it, the setting up then of, of the sort of unit itself. So I helped mm-hmm. set it up. And at that stage, I, uh, I was managing the forensic uh, management team, mm-hmm. which, again, was all police officers at this stage. Yeah. Um, and then I also had the um, the managerial uh, remit for the digital investigation unit. Right. Okay. Although I wasn't a practitioner, mm-hmm. uh, I was in there as the sort of manager. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then what I did do, I went on a few courses, the mobile phone courses, uh, computer forensic courses, just mm-hmm. so I had a, a knowledge of yeah. what the lads were doing. Yeah. So when it did come to doing the forensic strategies, mm-hmm. etc., I'd have a bit of a, an idea of how they could be utilized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then Jackie left in 2011 um, and um, they offered me uh, her sort of position. Right. So from 2011, I then ran the uh, the, the forensic sort of side in the yeah. uh, the CTU. Brilliant. And and as you pointed out, and just to sort of make it clear to people who are, who are listening who don't understand, so obviously that was around the time I went back to counterterrorism in the West Midlands. Um, and as you know, uh, Bob, the... Um, it's a, it's a national network, isn't it? So whilst you whilst you might be um, physically located day to day in Manchester or Birmingham or London, uh, when a, a large scale ex, um, attack or operation um, happens, kicks, yeah. kicks off, yeah. then you can you can basically work anywhere in the country, can't you? Yeah, I, I was I worked down at at Fort Helstead. Um, I was down there for um, quite a few months doing um, the uh, forensic exploitation of um, IEDs that came back from uh, Afghanistan. Right. So um, uh, they were sort of graded um, uh, in the sort of um, red, amber and green. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the green were just IEDs that had been recovered by our forces out there um, from bomb factories, etc. cetera. Um, then the ambers were ones that had gone off and had injured troops. And then the red um, uh, was ones that obviously killed um, either uh, UK or US um, or allied sort of um, tra- troops out there. Yeah. So we, we had set up 
um, that would be scooped up out in, in, in Afghan in theatre. It would be um, triaged out there to make sure it was safe. Mm-hmm. And then it would be brought back, all bagged up, brought back to Fort Halstead, where there was a, a team of us. We would um, exploit it all for DNA fingerprints um, and intel from it as well. Yeah, some, had some really good results from that. Fantastic results. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I was able to go down and do that, which was brilliant. Um, I got called down to, to um, Birmingham uh, mm-hmm. to assist down there when they had uh, a lot going around um, setting off IEDs outside mosques. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we helped over in Leeds. Um, well, it's one of those, you, you help out everywhere. Um, down in the Met, when we we done um, a court case review of a lot of the IRA bombs that had gone off, yeah, looking yeah. for the advances in DNA, as we spoke about. Mm-hmm. Whereas back in the 80s and 90s, a lot of stuff was scooped up and put into bags. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we went back down and we went through all those and again, we recovered full DNA profiles of, mm. you know, bits and pieces. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there was well, a it's, uh, at the risk of sounding controversial now, given that that's post sort of Good Friday, Good Friday Agreement, it seems it seems to be rather ironic that they were putting, um, seems to me they were putting more effort into trying to investigate uh, ex-members of armed forces who'd been out in Northern Ireland in the 1970s yeah. than they were actually trying to identify uh exactly. terror, terror i mean what i've got to say that that to be devil's advocate about all of that um is is there anything to be gained by trying to identify an ira terrorist who had even if you made that identification under the good friday agreement there was nothing uh, unless unless there's a piece of legislation that i'm unaware of were we able were, were we able to prosecute people it was a lot of it was to do with intel um because um I don't know how much we can sort of talk about it on here, but new new sort of trends were coming out. In uh, it it was financed, but this way it was financed by the PSNI, right? um, Because they wanted some intel from stuff from back in the eighties and nineties, right? um, Because of stuff that they're finding now. Mm. Um, So I I done this. um, It's probably better that we stay away from that. Yeah, it's about six years ago when I done it. Six, Mm. seven, eight years ago. So. Uh, there was a reason why why we done it, but mm. it was just it's just to sort of put an example in there that yeah yeah no no for, I, you know for national I get it I get it so um so yeah so obviously uh, in that role then uh, just describe I mean I, I know we'll come and talk about it in a minute but I know that you were that you were the crime scene manager for the Manchester Arena bombing um, which is obviously a, a, a massive a massive you know issue for everyone involved in that job not least the the families of people who, who lost loved, one, loved ones but um what other were you involved in the other sort of before we talk about that were you involved in any other sort of significant jobs um only things that fell out of, of um, national jobs uh, lee rigby mm. right um obviously um happened in london but he was from the, the northwest up here right uh, in fact about two well about three miles up the road from where we're speaking now um he was a local lad in middleton Mm. Um, so um, some um, actions came out of that and we went round and had a look at the house and, and, and we, we had to do some work up here for, uh, for, for that sort of job. Um, uh, and, and down in London for the, uh, the, was it the Westminster Bridge was the first one. Yeah. Um, as I made a note of these before, so just get them on here. Yeah, got to get uh, 2017. Yeah, right. Okay, so obviously Manchester Arena was before that, then wasn't it? So, um, uh, well, you had the, the, the Westminster Bridge was in the March, and then we had the uh, arena in the May, 
Right. Um, okay. So the, the 22nd of May, which again, your, your five years ago. Your chronology is better than mine then. So, so London Bridge, what, what was your involvement there? Uh, again, it was stuff that, that came out of it. Uh, sorry, Westminster Bridge. Oh, Westminster Bridge. Westminster sorry. Bridge, yeah. Uh, some um, um, actions came out of that to do with the Northwest. So uh, we went round and had to go in and do um, house searches, mm. etc. Um, and uh, as it was, um, it had fallen out. It, he, it was Mahmoud, I think he was called, the, the offender. Mm. Um, he, he, he had some uh, English lessons. Um, and it was by um, someone who lived up here in Manchester. We didn't know that was the link at the time. Mm. So we, we had a link of, of a name in Manchester. So we ended up having to go around and do, um, do the house here. Nice. Um, but it was a full sort of, what you call a full forensic hit, mm. um, where we were going in, um, all suited and booted. Mm -hmm. uh, we were looking for explosive trace, etc. Mm. And then from that, we went through looking for all biometrics, all the digital um, footprints, um, and then a lot of other sort of recoveries. Um, as it was, as the um, investigation went on, uh, the person that was arrested um, ended up getting de-arrested mm. um, uh, because it was proven that um, there, there was no links um, to, to the terrorist sort of side mm -hmm. of uh, Mahmoud. It was just um, he, he was using the, um, the the lad up in Manchester as uh, as a sort of teacher right. for Arabic and for uh, for English. Right. Um, now, but, but really important that you bottom it out, really, I suppose. Exactly, you know? exactly. And we were in there for about four days, mm. you know, when, because at this stage we, we had no idea what the link was apart from mm. he, he was on his phone um, and he had made contact with him mm. about an hour before he drove across Westminster right. Bridge, yeah, um, yeah. killing people and then obviously killed the police officer at, um, yeah, as well. Um, now, uh, and in a way... Um, the, the the area where where it was a really nice area down in uh, in South Manchester, um, but he's now sort of classed as as um uh, like a, a a terrorist, although he was a hundred percent innocent. Yeah. Um. The the sick the stigma sort of sticking to them, right? And they've actually had to sell up and move out, right? Because um the even though as he was a hundred percent innocent, mm. um, because we had CT in there for a week. Yeah, yeah, four yeah. days we, we you know we cleared the house out with near yeah. enough people think uh, people think there's no smoke without fire exactly exactly mm -hmm. and um they say it, it i would say it's, well, it has ruined his life in a way yeah. but um well it's a bit like it, it's a bit like these poor people who end up getting and not you know the, mo most people who get locked up uh, most people who get arrested for uh downloading uh been suspicious you know downloading child abuse material or mm. you know deserve to be uh, locked up, but as you know, occasionally they get it wrong, don't they? Exactly. And, um, you know, and that's where technology sometimes can can actually take people, take police to the wrong person. You know, particularly if you've got someone who's who's uh, using a, a next door neighbor's Wi-Fi network or something like that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's you know, um, and then you, some poor bloke gets dragged out of his house at five o'clock in the morning and all the neighbors yep. watching you know and it's he hasn't done anything as he exactly you know, yeah. it does happen yeah. unfortunately doesn't it yeah um yeah terrible but so so let's talk about manchester arena now again going back to what i said early on in our conversation you know uh, and i had this conversation with with warren as well 
still the on still the subject of an ongoing sort of public inquiry, isn't it? Um, I believe is it is it done and dusted? Yeah. Um, it's they're, they're not taking any more evidence. Um, so it's okay. it's now on the sort of write up stage. Okay. Um, so. But what the what we do reckon is that once it um, they make their recommendations or their findings, mm. that, that there'll be some fallout from that, um, and then we may have to go back and look at at, at different okay. bits and pieces. But forensic so wise, um, we we're all finished. Yeah. So obviously there was the um, uh, the Abadi con the brother who was convicted, wasn't it? Um, yeah, and, uh, yeah, and uh, the, the 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 actual terrorist himself uh, dead in the explosion. So anyway, just talk talk me through your involvement in that in that job then. Um, well, uh, on the Monday, I was actually on a week's leave on the twenty uh, second of May, uh, and um, me and my wife were going out to to Malta on the early hours of Tuesday morning at um, a half past six flight from Manchester EasyJet to Malta for um, for five days, just a nice little spring break. Mm -hmm. So on the Monday, I got up early and it was a case of going out. We got our Euros and all the rest of it um, and uh, just finished a week up at um, Satan Force, which is the military relicensing where the police um, back onto it up at... Um, at Catterick, the EOD, they've yeah. got to, to relicense every year. And mm -hmm. we have different elements up there. And one of the elements is called Element 3, and that's a post-bomb blast. Uh, and what we have there is some members of CTU, investigators, uh, CSIs. Uh, and we go through a scenario. Day one, they're in a classroom, and they get different PowerPoints about uh, the CT and uh, the EOD, etc. And then day two... Uh, which I took, me and another lad called Dave Milner, one of the DCs from my office. And we were up, um, you, you set an IED off beside a motor vehicle. We put um, some body parts down. And then for the rest of the day, we just do like a, a recovery. We get people to do the recoveries. Um, so we just finished that on the Friday. So just, you say you put body, body parts down. I'm, I'm assuming that's not real body parts. No, no, sorry. Um, what, what it is, it's... Um, just for clarity. It, yeah. Sorry, for clarity, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's like an own goal. So we have someone was going to try and um, place an IED underneath the vehicle. Um, the IEDs um, detonated. Right. Um, uh, the person who was putting it down, um, his the body's been disrupted. So we put foam arms and foam legs and a um right. uh, uh, <laughs> down. I'm yeah. very relieved. Sorry, yeah. I'm very relieved. <laughs> <laughs> You've clarified that. Yeah, that's a good me, point. There's, that, me thinking, yeah. there's me thinking I'm gonna leave my body to medical science <laughs> find out no. that you fuckers are blowing it up, you know. <laughs> well that's that's a very good point. In fact, when I do talk about that, I do say body parts, so but I better just make sure I always uh, emphasize that part actually. Um but uh, so we just finished that on the Friday, and then obviously I had like on a week's leave. Um, and then on the Monday night, um, uh, my, my mother in law had come down. Uh, she was going to stay at our house looking after the dog. So um, she's still talking to my, my wife. I, I, I end up up to bed. It's about half past 10 now. So I says, I'll go, go to bed now. I'll get up first. Um, taxi had been booked for four o'clock in the morning. Um, and I literally just got into, uh, into bed. Um, when uh, Cheryl came up and says, um, uh, an alert come up on her phone saying there's been an incident at the arena. So, oh, bloody hell, like a news alert. So, um, got my own phone, had a look at it. Um, first thing you do is straight onto Facebook. You know, is there anything on there? Mm -hmm. um, social media. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and it said that um, first reports coming through that there's been some sort of explosion. Um, now, uh, I put on social media then, has anybody um, heard anything? Um, and one of the CSIs who was on nights actually phoned me at home and says, um, she's in the office, she's reading the, the log, and it's saying that it looks like um, there's something's happened on the stage. So um, there's been some sort of explosion. It might be a speaker. So I'm thinking, oh, that's, that's okay then. Mm. And then the next thing is, oh, no, 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 it's coming through now that um, it looks like there's been um, some sort of suicide bomber uh, and there's a lot of fatalities. Oh, my God. So with that, I thought, right, well, uh, I better start getting ready. Um, but Sod's Law is obviously um, my work's phone has been switched off. Um, and that's not been put on charge and there's about 20% on it because I'm I'm obviously going to be going away. So I thought first things first, plug my phone in because this is going to go mental in a minute. Uh, And sure enough, I then got a phone call saying that, uh, you know, appreciate um, you're not in, but um, any chance you can make your way into the uh, CT office. Um, The gaffers are all on the way in as well. So um, we've got some, we used to have someone on 24-7 cover for mm. forensic management and it just so happened to be dave milner the lad who uh, i was up at the um satan force with so i actually phoned dave and he hadn't heard about it so it says i think you better start making your way into the office mm-hmm. we also had somebody on call for the digital side so i contacted him and it says make your way in um because i'm making my way in as well managed to contact two other people in the office um uh, and they started making their way in as well so we got in um went up into our uh, operations room um, and we had the detective chief superintendent Barraclough there and uh, ACC Jackson. Um, And it was a case of, um, from Mr. Barraclough, any chance you can get some staff, get down to the arena uh, and find out exactly what's happening within Mm -hmm. that scene. Uh, It's it's now going to be a CT scene. So uh, I want you to take over um, the crime scene as the crime scene manager. Mm-hmm. So um, this was now around about half past 11, a quarter to 12. Right. Uh, so and the bomb had gone off at half 10. So uh, I says, yeah, of course I will, boss. But uh, just let you know, I'm, I'm due to be flying out at, at half six in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was one well, of those sort of like little puppy eyes from him. Well, yeah, uh, I, I can't yeah. stop your leave. However, yeah. I could really do with you getting down there. Yeah. So I says, yeah, no problem, boss. Um, so oh, we, we got horrible, isn't it? I mean, it's a, it's a kind of a. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm only. I've been in that situation myself. Not, not, not what you've described, but similar kind of stuff where, where you've got that kind of. It's a kind of a real bittersweet feeling of thinking my holiday's just been screwed here. Yeah. But, but at the but it, there's also an opportunity to be part of something that is. Exactly. It's what you train for. Career defining, isn't it? Really. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But on the way down, uh, with blue lights on, and I actually for my wife and uh, Dave's driving, I'm on the phone, and it just says, "Yeah, it looks like it's a runner. It's um, I'm going to the scene. So if you still want to go, um, you fly out, and I'll, I might get out there in a few days later." And to be credit to to, to my wife, <clears throat> she actually did say, "Listen, we can have a holiday another time. There's going to be a lot of families will never have a holiday again." Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, right. that's that's sort of you know stirs you on a bit thinking well oh, oh, thanks well bless you, her, know. you know i mean yeah. i know that, and this is the thing isn't it this is what again the point i keep making again and again it's the families 
mm. who you couldn't do this job without the family. Yeah, exactly, you? exactly, definitely not. And you say I've missed weddings, I've missed christenings, I've missed birthdays because of um, you know being at a job uh, as a CSI or a crime scene manager. You just can't leave it when you're halfway through it. That's right. um, but yeah, so um, we get down there. Um, we managed to get through a couple of cordons. Um, we're just in our um, fan we were in um, i think we we're in the the call out fan at this stage hmm. um and uh, we managed to get down to victoria station they were still doing some triage on the um the station itself hmm. um um but um, most of the the injured parties at this stage had gone we're now looking another hour since i went in the office so i think this was around about now um uh it's half past about half past 12. right um, so I'll make myself um, up so some stairs that lead up onto mezzanine level that lead into the box office itself, mm -hmm. uh, the box office area. Uh, and there was a cordon there and there was um, the night um, GMP, CID, senior officer, superintendent, who I know uh, from, from the past. So I started speaking to her uh, and there was um, a lad from British Transport Police that was there as well. Mm. who was one of their crime scene managers. So I informed them that um, I'm taking over the scene now, CT scene. Is there anybody um, still alive in there? And the answer was no. Um, they've been, um, police officers have gone in, um, other medical sort of first responders have all been in there. Um, they said there's a lot of items in there now that weren't in there at the time of the explosion, which obviously helps you as a, a scene manager. And that was um, like a medical uh, intervention. Right. Um, there was blankets, bottles of water, trauma yeah. kit bags, yeah. uh, bandages, etc. Um, so, uh, so you know when you're going in there, your, your first uh, initial um, look round, there's a lot of stuff in there that wasn't there at the time. Mm -hmm. And that's where it differs from a lot of the murder scenes that you do, is that that what's in there at that time when you first walk in the door, nothing else has been taken in there mm -hmm. since the murder. So you can yeah. concentrate on everything. Um, so so, so just to just to sort of pause you there, I mean, <coughs> me. we're, we're going like, to we're going to talk. We're going to by, by necessity, we're going to have to talk about this in a fairly kind of cold blooded, but hopefully sensitive way in the sense yeah. that there's there's a process that needs to be followed here, isn't there? Yeah. Um, and and you you you've got to stick to the process rather than be detracted distracted by what's actually happened I suppose or the emotion of it I suppose so when you approach a scene like that um, talk me through your mental process yeah well at the, at the end of the day um, it's a, it's a massive crime scene so I, I've been told that there's eighteen dead in there now plus bad guy. And are those, um, are those, and again, forgive me, this is, it's just, we just need to understand this. Are the bodies still in situ at yes, that point? Yes, yeah. Right. Um, there's no one injured. Um, I've been told there's 18 bodies in there, plus the remains of um, the, the suicide bomber. However, there's actually 19 bodies. There was two that were um, right up against each other. So when they'd done the initial sort of count round, they didn't realise, um, but there's actually 19 in there. So um, my first thoughts was, right, well, let's get to the entrance. We can stand there and we can have a bit of a, a view in uh, and see what, what, you know, what we're going to be um, faced with. So um, we stood there. And, and to be honest with you, I sort of, excuse me, I, I looked at Dave and Dave looked at me. At this stage, sorry, there's myself, there was Dave Milner, 
who was going to be my exhibit officer. Uh, he's a DC. There was Dave Jordan, who was a DS. He was from our digital investigations unit. I had a girl called uh, Colette, Colette Harris-Jones. She was uh, one of the FMT staff, police staff, but uh, she was a, um, a CSI in the past. Um, and she came into the CT world as one of the uh, police staff. Mm -hmm. So experienced um, people. So the four of us sort of stood there. Um, and to be honest, we sort of looked at each other thinking, what the fuck did we do here? Oh, yeah, no, um, I know. I can't even imagine it. But it was a case of straight away, uh, it was either myself or it was Dave that said it. I can't remember who it was, but we just said, well, it's just a big Satan force. It's Satan force. We deal with one body here. We're dealing with what we thought this stage was, was nine, uh, 18. Um, and with any um, crime scene, um, uh, you always have what we call a common approach path. Mm -hmm. So it's a path where you're, you're now going to, everyone will go in along that path. And then if you're coming back out, you stick to that path so that you're not walking over the crime scene and doing any contamination, uh, any type of contamination. So um, we knew that the, um, from Mr. Barraclough, um, he's given me two sort of um, priorities. Um, in fact, there was three priorities, but the main, the two of them was identify the bomber. Mm -hmm. identify the explosive used uh, and make sure all CCTV is um, secured. Now the CCTV had already been secured by the time I got there. So my two priorities now was identify the bomber, identify the explosives, because obviously if we can identify him, then um, that'll then go off in tangents as to, well, who is he? Who's he working with? Where is he from? Is there an address, et cetera? Yeah. And is, he, if, is there anybody else out there that's, you know, yeah, about to do it again? Exactly. Co-conspirators. Co yeah. um, and the explosives, um, what type of explosives are they? Are they homemade? If they're homemade, well, where have they got the ingredients for the for it? Where have they made them? Um, are they um, commercial explosives? Again, if they're commercial, where have they come from? Or if they're military grade, uh, where they come from, things like Semtex uh, along so, those lines. So it's really interesting. And this is really, I mean, it doesn't come as a, any surprise to me at all, from, given my background. But, uh, you know, for people listening, really, really interesting that the priority is to stop this happening again. Definitely. And uh, yeah. so the assumption must be at that stage that there are other conspirators out there who have as, as yet unidentified. So look, as you say, identifying him, identifying uh, addresses, uh, other individuals who may be associated with them number one priority isn't it, it definitely because we don't know is there another lad out there with a bomb on his back about to attack somewhere else um and that's the main priority is to, to find out who he is mm -hmm. um so by standing at the doorway looking into the um the box office um this is all um this is all open source now mm -hmm. um i've given evidence both at the, the trial of the brother and I've given evidence at the um, inquiry. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and we've produced maps to show all this. So, you know, everything I'm talking about now um, has already been um, out in the public domain, mm -hmm. um, albeit it, it was say a court, et cetera, and probably hasn't mm -hmm. been reported on. Mm -hmm. um, but it, we, we stood there looking in um, and you could see too, uh, there was a lot straight, straight away we noticed there was a lot of glass around um, and there was also a lot of um, small nuts lying everywhere. Hmm. Um, and obviously the, the nuts were part of this shrapnel that came from the bomb. Um, I'll go off on a tangent here, but hmm. um, 
after we'd done the body recovery and then we started recovering the nuts, we recovered 1,920 nuts just from the floor itself. Mm. So we reckon there was about uh, 2,500 nuts within the bomb. Mm. Um, 10 millimeter nuts, which looks like, you know, uh, like a, a shotgun. So mm. you could think of a shotgun being fired. Um, you know, 2,000 times oh my God. Uh, in a 360-degree um, sphere. Uh, but we noticed that straight away. Uh, and we noticed to, to our right, um, as you look into the box office um, area, directly ahead is there were some windows that, that were for the box office. And there's um, uh, an exit at the side that takes you down to a car park. Some steps that lead up to a, a higher level um, where there used to, be a, an old McDonald's restaurant and an entrance into the office block there. Mm. And then to the, the left um, was the, the wooden doors, uh, double doors that lead into the concourse itself, into the oh. arena. Yeah. Um, and uh, in front of those doors, we had um, a lot of uh, the, the deceased in a circle. Right. So you could see straight away that, that the device has gone off, obviously in the middle of that circle. Mm -hmm. um, you could see the pitting on the floor. As it was, there were 16 dead uh, in a circle round there. Uh, just outside the circle was um, number 17. Number 18 mm -hmm. was on the uh, the exit that leads down towards the car park. And number 19 was up the stairs, um, the steps that lead up to the office block. Mm -hmm. um, she was actually up there, stood up to get a better view of her daughter coming out of the double doors uh, when the bomb oh, went off. God. Yeah, and she got hit once. Um, but as I say, it, uh, a, a 10 millimeter nut um, hit her once. Oh, it's like um, a bullet. It's a bullet. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so we, uh, we could see that through the double doors, one set of double doors was still open. And I was told that if uh, you could just about see something through there, uh, and that was the, um, the, the remains of, um, of, of the bomber. Mm. Uh, and this came from the, the BTP lad. So um, uh, at this stage, I've been told EOD have been in and they've rendered it as safe as they can, as they can say it's safe. Uh, it, none of the bodies had been turned over or searched. Um, we've had firearms officers in there and we're obviously all the first responders. I mean, from um, an elimination point of view, from a contamination point of view, it's a nightmare, isn't it? Because whilst you've obviously got a, a pri the priority is to, is to preserve life, isn't it, initially, and uh, to mitigate any further threats. So obviously you're going to have the firearms officers going in to do to, to make it safe. Then you've got to have paramedics coming in to, to, to either treat and remove uh, casualties or pronounced life extinct of those who are hit. Um, and then you've probably got God knows how many other first responders coming in to do to try and help. So unlike, as you say, unlike a typical inverted commas murder scene, yeah. you know, you might you may have had well, you're going to have obviously the, sus the suspect has, has been there and probably left in a murder yeah. scene. And you're going to have, um, you know, initial responders going to get probably cops, a couple of cops, isn't it? Who, cops, who, turn, yeah. who turn up. Yeah, find a body and things. Pro shit. Probably a, a couple of paramedics, maybe yep. to come and have a look, and that's probably it, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Before yeah. the before the scene gets locked down. Yeah. Whereas so in your I think case, in here we, we probably had at least two hundred people through there. Oh my god! You know, so um, but it, it's it it is what it is. As you you, you yeah, rightly yeah. said it there, you, you've got to uh, preserve life. 
That, that's the main thing. Um, as it was, and again, off on a tangent, um, I had a, a, a large piece of work uh, and it was actually, you know, a year later when, when I actually got around to doing it was to do with any contamination. Mm. So we had a list of all the officers who were in there um, and then um, the CSIs that were in and uh, we were able to, I had to get statements off a couple of them um, because some had been to another scene, but that's, that's a different, um, different day, a different story. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, so um, the priority we said is we're going to um, common approach path. We'll walk down the uh, to the right of ourselves where the steps was, follow the, the sort of wall around the natural way around, walk in front of the uh, the box office windows. Um, and then that means we're not going into where the majority of, of the deceased were. Mm. Um, and the, I think it was 10 double doors. The end ones were the ones that were open. Uh, we would go in there and we would assess um, the uh, the bomber for, for ID. Um, but in, in the meantime, as we're walking around, we keep an eye out for anything else that mm. may um, sort of spring, you know, that may be out of place and may help us. Um, I've had, um, I've been fortunate enough to, to go on uh, quite a few courses uh, in, in America as well with the FBI to do with post-bomb blasts uh, and the makeup of devices. So mm. I had a little bit of a, a knowledge, a good knowledge of, um, you know, what a device would look like, mm. you know, your five main component parts, which main charge, detonator, uh, power supply, and packaging. So mm-hmm. you'd be looking for any of those as we're walking through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we saw we saw a mobile phone that was completely um, broken, a little burner phone. First of all, I thought that might be part of the device, but as it was, it wasn't. It was one that um, the Salman had used to phone back to Libya. Um, we found uh, we, you could see straps from a, a rucksack so straight away. Mm. Thought, well, the bomb's obviously been a rucksack. We passed that back out for, for intel. Um, but as we're walking around, uh, it was brought to my attention a bank card lying on the floor uh, near the entrance into the, um, the, uh, the concourse itself. Mm. Um, and um, so it called me over. Um, I think it was Dave Milner called me. Uh, and we have a look at it. We pick it up. Obviously got gloves and stuff on, but it's a bank card and it's completely uh, mottled along the top. It's singed, it's burned, bits been broken off. Mm. It's a Halifax, uh, a Royal Bank of Scotland card. It's got details on there. Um, and my first initial thoughts was, this has been very, very close to the seat of the explosion. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it, it looks like it could be the bombers, but it's too easy, this. You know, it's like a training exercise is lying there on the floor. Yeah, yeah. But my mind then sort of clicks back to 7-7 and we know what each of the bombers on there had ID on them, either driving licenses or um, some sort of ID so Mm. that they were ID near enough straight away. Um, But we pick it up and we look at it and, um, you know, I'm saying, bloody hell, why is it all burnt at the top? Why is it singed? Mm. Um, is Is it the bombers? Uh, the name on there was Salman Arabidi, and then say all the, the bank details. So, uh, and I'll be honest, I had two little men on my shoulders, one saying to me, right, you better phone this in. And mm. then the other one, and the other side saying, well, if you phone that in, it's not Tim, you're going to look a right dick. Yeah. And then this other little man saying, well, if you don't phone it in, you're going to look a bigger dick. Yeah, you know? I know. Well, it's, it's, one, it's one of those, isn't it? Where, it's a bit um, second. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't want to send people off on a wild goose chase. Exactly. But- but equally, um, yeah. So anyway, so so I phoned uh, Mr. Barclough direct, uh, and I says, uh, "Boss, um, 
um, I might have a bit of an ID. Um, I found this card and he was given it, well, what's your gut instincts? So I said, my gut instincts has is, been very, very close to the, to the bomber. Um, if if not um, on on the bomber, it's been uh, right beside him when it's gone off. Mm. I says, the way it's, it's burned, the way it's, it's broken, the way we found it hasn't been dropped. It's not fallen out of a wallet. Um, hasn't just been stood on. Um, it's been very, very close to the explosion. My gut feeling is that um, it's come from from the bomber. Mm-hmm. So he says, well, I'll go with that. And what's the details? We'll so give him the details. Um, and that set the ball rolling then. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're able to give him the uh, bank card details, the uh, sort code uh, and the name. Uh, and apparently that was 12 minutes from us walking in the door to making the call. Yeah, uh, it was 12 minutes. The thing is, I know exactly that, you know, as soon as you've passed that information off, you've set a juggernaut. Oh, a juggernaut has set off at 100 yeah. miles an hour, hasn't it? Definitely. Yeah. And that's why you say for that split second, you think, oh, shit, what shall I do here? Is it him or is it not? Yeah. But it, it was just that it, it had to be some somewhere close to him. Um, it, it was just just. It, it had to be yeah, so that's yeah. that's why you well, make that decision ultimately you were absolutely right weren't you, sir? yeah exactly but if he had a, that uh, card in his pocket his jeans pocket we wouldn't have found it right. and we wouldn't have been able to get the id for at least a couple more hours right. because when uh, when he um detonated the device um the, the bombs on his back he's he's leaning forward slightly because of the weight of the bomb um it's blown the sort of top half of him um, through the double doors into the concourse itself. Right. Um, his two legs have, have gone blown off and they've gone into where the victims are. Um, and his left arm has been blown off. And that's, you could see a left arm um, in there with all the other bits and pieces mm. as we're walking around. But as I say, um, the card was actually in his jacket pocket. So when it went bang, that got thrown out, that got blown out along with the right. mobile phone. So, so really very 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 fortunate i suppose i mean there's, yes there's, i mean i've just got to just pause here to say there is nothing you know i'm listening to this and it's 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 grueling it's as it's as grueling as anything i've ever listened to ever in the policing or since i've left policing so and and another thing i think it's really really important to say is and i've said it before but i'm going to say it again this is a horrific incident that had the most devastating impact on so many people. Yeah. Uh, the, the people who die, the people who are injured, people who will go for the rest of their lives with life-changing injuries. It's a horrific incident. Um, but I do think it's incredibly important that people understand the job that you and people like you, we're asking people like you to do in these horrific incidents. So I just needed to say that because I don't want anyone to ever point the finger at me or at you or anyone involved in these podcasts and say, you're, you're glorifying this or you're, Definitely not, a, there's no. nothing, there is not one single good thing that can be said about any of this, is there? No, no. And, and the main thing is that um, the reason we do what we do is to get justice for those people that are, that are um, the, the victims that are, you know, either deceased in there or for the injured parties that yeah. uh, that were taken out, you know, our, our number one priority is is justice mm-hmm. uh, and to make sure that we do our, our job right so that we, we can get that justice. 
Yeah. Uh, and I think you're spot on there. You know, um, I'm not on here today to to sit here saying, you know, I'm Mister, you know, Billy Big Bollocks. Mm. We've gone in, we've done this, we've done that. We're brilliant. Mm. You know, we went in, we had a job to do, and and I think you know we we done it, yeah. we done it well. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And but it's fascinating. It's fascinating to to sit and listen. Even for me, and I was in the police for thirty years. Mm. For God's sake, it's fascinating even for me to sit and listen to your thought processes about where the fuck do you start with yeah. something like that? Because it's off the scale, isn't it? It is. Uh, and uh, But then it, that, you know, seconds later takes in, well, where we start is from the beginning. Let's mm. get in there. Let's get that common approach, get in, assess it, um, see what we're up to, see what we can do. And if we can do that, i.e. get in, try and identify him, then get on with that. Mm. And then... Um, and again, it, it may sound a little bit callous, but at this stage, I'm not interested in the deceased in there mm. at this initial stage mm. because um, they they won't give me the evidence that I need to mm. pass back out, yeah. um, as you said before, for that juggernaut to start the engine and start yeah. going. Yeah. So, um, so, given, so given that you've found the bank card, uh, which is obviously positive, but it's by no means a definitive uh, ID on, on your bomber. So um, I'm thinking you, you obviously need that to be corroborated in, in some significant way. So, so where do you go? Where do you, what do you do next? Well, the first thing from, for me then when I passed that through was uh, make sure, you know, um, do a PNC check on that name. Um, and they did do so. I called back saying that there is someone with those details known on the police national computer. Mm. Now, because they've says that to me, again, my, it's spinning in my head, right? Well, if uh, he's been locked up, um, uh, everybody being locked up, you give your fingerprints, you give your DNA. And a lot of the times you get your photograph taken as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully, from what Dave just says to me there, mm. there's three items there mm. that I may be able to um, utilize Mm. when I'm trying to identify this bomber. Mm-hmm. So um, we made our way into where the, uh, the, the, the remains um, of, uh, of Salman was. It had been covered over with uh, just some brown paper. Mm. Um, so when we took the brown paper off, uh, to my amazement, um, his face was still intact. Right, okay. Um, his, left, um, his left arm had been blown, blown away and obviously... Um, what we were left with was uh, a piece of the upper uh, torso. You could see a little bit of uh, the, his back, but his shoulders and his right arm was still attached to right. his head. Right. So in my thought straight away was, well, straight away, I've got a, a right hand here that's mm-hmm. still attached to, yeah. to the body. Mm-hmm. So I've got fingerprints yeah. I may be able to utilize on there. And also, as I say, his face was intact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So my first thing was to say to collect, right, take loads of photographs of his face. Mm-hmm. We're getting that. And once she's done that, um, we had contacted um, uh, some of the staff that were outside the arena at this stage. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just says, give me your, get out there now with your SD card mm-hmm. and hand it over. Yeah. Because that's the, that's the first bit of evidence. Hopefully they'll be mm-hmm. able to see if we've got his, um, his photograph on file. Right. So that went off straight away. Um, and um, as it was, we did have his photograph on file. Mm-hmm. They were able to have a look at it. And 
uh, again, it's not a hundred percent. It was him, but it raised it right up to, to mm -hmm. the boss that yeah, yeah, we've yeah. got that name. You're on the right, you're off and on the right track. It looks yeah. like it, it may be him. Yeah. Um, and then our next bit then was obviously, um, let's get the, um, the, the right hand fingerprinted. Yeah. Um, with a little bit of a problem with that, um, we use an electronic um, machine called a Seek machine. Um, it's been upgraded now over the last few years, but when we went in to do it on the night, um, basically what you do, um, there's uh, you sort of log into like Windows on there, you get the details, um, put in as much details you can. Um, and then a template comes up and then you take your fingerprints electronically it stores them on this temperance and then that temperance can be sent electronically and that, that was down to um new scotland yard to mm -hmm. the uh, fingerprint bureau down there the ct right. sort of side yeah. so i've made the phone call um as as you as you as you're aware at mm -hmm. this stage um we've got ct um ops room set up in manchester mm -hmm. but it's all been um, set up in london as well yeah through the reserve desk so they're all up and running down there um, I spoke to uh, the FMT, they were sending me staff up, and then I spoke to the um, fingerprint lads uh, at SCD4, um, and they were ready then for us to send the fingerprints down. Mm -hmm. As it was, we, we printed his hand as best we could, um, but it wouldn't transmit, um, unfortunately. And right. what we didn't know at this stage, and we found out later, was because of where we were inside the arena, it wasn't picking up a signal. Right. Uh, and you talk about learning curve and, and, and learning um, different things from it. Mm. We, we've used that SIG machine so many times in training, mm. um, but it was always outdoors. Right. So it always picked up a signal. Right. And it just did not occur to me at this stage that it's not picking up the signal. Right. Um, as it was, um, it, we managed then just to get some black ink from the uh, scenes of crime lad from um, the BTP. Mm. He managed to get me some black ink, and I, I done it the old-fashioned way right. of taking the fingerprints off uh, off that right hand. Okay. We just put them onto a piece of white cardboard, uh, and then from there they were sent over to. It turned out the fingerprint department of GMP, uh, and they were sent over there. Um, and, and just out of curiosity, how that works? Then does that need need to then be? Can you use that sort of hard copy? electronically from manchester to then compare with the national database in london or do you have to have that hard copy physically blue lighted down to london no it would be um uh, be able to be physically looked at onto the um, police national computer so right. they would be able to have a look at what i sent down on the seat machine um and they would be able to compare to the the prints that was um held on um, the, the the national computer right yeah. But, but um, uh, I've now got the paper copy that's gone over to GMP. Um, this has now taken a few hours uh, to, to get everything uh, up and running. This is now around about half four in the morning, five o'clock, six o'clock in the morning. Um, but in that stage, we were still doing all the bits and pieces. We were um, recovering items for the, the explosives. So we took the jacket, the remains of his jacket off him. Um, I had swabbed the, uh, the mottled area where the, the device went off because um, we know that a lot of obviously the, the explosion would go downwards. So we're looking for explosive trace. Uh, and then we've also recovered um, a piece of the, the metal tin from inside the bomb that was all suited inside. So that would have explosive trace on. 
Right. Um, again, as you can imagine, phone calls will be going out throughout the night. We've got scientists being blue lighted up from um, from London, from um, the uh, FAL down at, in Kent. Yeah. Um, in fact, the next day, they actually came up on a helicopter, but uh, during the night, they were blue lighted up. Mm. Um, so although we were concentrating on him uh, for ID, we also were getting the other priority of looking for the um, explosive trace as well. Right. right. Um, and as just it on, was, just, just on curi curiosity, um, how uh, in, in terms of uh, to, before we talk about explosives, talk about the fingerprints, fingerprints versus DNA. So obviously, given that he was on in the system, did we have his DNA already from the previous we, arrest? We did have as well. Yeah. So, so in DNA. Terms of how quickly could you get a DNA profile? Again, um, we had taken DNA that was sent out um, and that was uh, blue lighted up to uh, the um, uh, forensic, um, forensic service provider. Uh, so that was already taken up and they're based up in Chorley, which is about 35 miles from, from, uh, from Manchester. Right. So they were getting turned out and we were getting that turned over straight away. Mm -hmm. uh, normally, you've got to go through uh, forensic submissions and do different forms and budgets and stuff before you send stuff off mm -hmm. obviously in this case it's a case that we've got a, a swab it's on its way down there mm -hmm. treated as a premium we need to get um a, a profile of it we believe it to be etc mm -hmm. so everything was sort of done over the phone uh and then retrospectively you can go back into the strategies right. but then it's, it's one of those um scenarios which which you just couldn't write mm -hmm. um was um we sent his right hand um, over the, the prints from his right hand to the um, uh, fingerprint bureau. I then get a phone call from their manager um, around about eight o'clock in the morning, uh, half past seven-ish, to say that uh, they've had the prints, they're looking at them, excuse me, but unfortunately, we haven't got his right hand on the system. Oh, God. So it was one of those, fuck off, I've been here all night, I'm oh, tired, oh, just dear. tell me, is it him? Yeah. And he says, Honestly, he says uh, when he'd been arrested, uh, his right hand had been broken. Oh, so we didn't have the prints. So when I do these talks now and, and talk to um, CTUs and stuff and, and the cops, I say, I know this may sound a silly question, mm. but if you go back four hours, five hours, what I should have said, can you confirm you've got both these hands oh, on God. the system? I mean, but, 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 you but never Bob, think of that, do you? But Bob, what's the chances? Exactly. What's, what's the chances of that? Yeah. Yeah, of I don't know what the stats would be, but say of oh, a million it'd be people, point no, no, exactly, yeah, percent, wouldn't it? Yeah, I, I just don't. And I was just gutted. I thought, oh shit. So it was a case of, well, tell me you have got his left hand, um, and this is yes, we have. So as well, print a copy of that off and get some staff over to me here now, because I've got his left arm here. At this stage, I knew the left arm that had recovered, yeah. uh, or it's going to be recovered, was his. Uh, so we ended up getting them, the uh, fingerprint officers to come across, got them suited and booted, got them into the scene. Uh, and I said, that's the left arm there, believed to be the offenders. Um, can you give a, an ID on it? And straight away, they had a look. And within mm -hmm. a matter of minutes, um, right. they were able to give me a, a visual, a verbal, yes, it's him. But then what they had to do was take prints off it. Um, and for the, the, the sort of QA side, so when you say they give you a visual, that means they've taken they've taken they, they've, they've, they've taken a print, his, they've right. taken um black, uh, inked his, his hand, uh, they've had a look at the the inked impressions, 
against the impressions that's um, on the, on the uh, police national computer. And they were able to look straight away and say, as an expert, that's the same. Okay. However, I can't give you that in writing, and I can't give it to you 100% yeah, until yeah, yeah, we take it yeah. back and we do all the markings is what they would normally do. Mm. But he was able to say, I'm telling you now that's him. So again, that phone call has gone back to the gaffer and says, I know it's a couple of hours longer than what we were hoping, but I mm. can now 100% uh, certain it's, it's Salman Abidi. Right. By its time, as you said before, that juggernaut has now started driving around Manchester. Oh, yeah. and, and doors have already been put in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, as it was from then, we got a DNA hit back from it as well right. to say it was definitely him. Brilliant. So this was before the nine o'clock in the morning. Um, or you know, we had a full ID, etc. On him. Um, we had already the stage by nine o'clock. Um, exhibits were on the way down to to FAL. Right. Um, for the the explosive sort of side, mm -hmm. um, FAL had turned up. We had some staff turn up from um, uh, the FMT in London. They were up doing a course in uh, Cumbria. Mm -hmm. um, and as soon as they woke up in the morning and heard what had happened, I got a phone call from the gaffer from, from that lot mm -hmm. saying that you've got 12 staff on your way. So right. we had them there. We had staff on the way up from um, uh, West Yorkshire, came across from Leeds. Mm -hmm. uh, I had staff coming up from Birmingham. Uh, and staff up from the uh, CTU down in the, the south um, west so, as well. So you've obviously uh, fulfilled your initial high priority actions in terms yep. of identify the bomber, done, uh, take samples to identify the uh, explosive, done, and that's kind of in hand now. So that kind of, I suppose, takes the pressure off you a little tiny bit, um, but you've still got this massive, massive scene to have to deal with so talk me talk me through how you do that uh, well first of all we saw quite a lot of um items that were lying around that looked as if they were part and parcel of the device uh, to start with there was the there was a battery there was a switch um we had um a lad come up from the bomb data center the National Bomb Data Centre, which is uh, based, uh, it was at the time in the New Scotland Yard. That's part of SO15. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, Chris blue lighted up uh, from London, uh, and he was he was my sort of um, my guru to do with uh, the bits and pieces that were lying around. Um, so I was able to to relieve some of the pressure of myself and put it onto him to identify bits and pieces of the device, mm -hmm. whilst my next big um sort of uh part of the investigation a part of the recovery was the uh, the the recovery of the, of the deceased mm -hmm. um so we had a few visits come down and um and the main ones then that came into the scene was the home office pathologists from gmp right. Right. now again i'm on, i was on good first name terms with them because of my experience mm -hmm. as a, a senior crime scene manager Mm -hmm. um so the three of them came down and i'm sure um, just on that one i'm sure even for them given the stuff that they've seen and done over the years it must have been even quite shocking for them oh I definitely imagine. yeah 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 and the court well sorry but just before they came we had uh, the coroner came down as well because obviously um uh, under the coronial act before we can start moving bodies mm. the, the coroner must be made aware etc so uh he came down uh, in fact two of them came down um they call it they all do they all have to get suited and booted up yeah yeah i, I only got them in as close i didn't take them into the main scene per se i got them to uh the, the end of the walkway where you can look in to where all the deceased were mm -hmm. 
or the scene itself. So we got them in and I explained to them what the scene was. Um, they, there was a health and safety issue at this stage because there's a glass roof above the, um, the arena. And you could see now that a lot of the glass, um, thick glass panels had been cracked with the force of the, the shrapnel hitting them. Mm -hmm. So we had this to, to, to contend with and I, want, I didn't want to bring them into the scene um, uh, as we were still doing our recoveries. Um, but the coroners came down, I, I spoke to them about it. Um, I actually remember saying to Mr. Meadows, he, he said, how long do you think it'll be before you get the bodies out? So it says, I, I doubt that we'll get them out today. Um, it'll probably be, you know, it's going to be at least by midnight, if not tomorrow, before we can get them out. Because mm -hmm. at this stage, we were still going through our strategy of how we're going to get the, the, the deceased out. Mm -hmm. uh, pathologists came down, um, talked them through it as well. And then we had a meeting with um, the gaffer um, and um, the pathologists. Uh, the DVI sort of side, the disaster victim identification. Mm -hmm. It was decided decided that we will go down using the full DVI procedures. Mm -hmm. um, and just to pause you there, yeah. Just to pause you there. If anybody's listening to this and and wants to know more about how the disaster victim identification process works, an earlier podcast with uh, my ex colleague uh, Lee Warmby. Uh, who was uh, our force lead for DVI will explain that whole process. It's just useful. It might be useful yeah. listening for people. So, Brilliant. Yeah. Um, so we came up that we will be recovering the, the deceased with um, uh, using the DVI method. So at this stage, we were getting a lot of staff coming in that are DVI trained. Um, we had what they call SIRMs, uh, senior uh, evidence recovery managers in the DVI side. We had one from GMP. We had one from British Transport Police and we had one from uh, Lancashire Police, who's the sort of the, the lead around the northwest for DVI. Uh, she was there as well. So um, it, it took us a couple of hours to, to set everything up. Mm -hmm. um, we had our temporary holding area or temporary mortuary was um, where the box office area is, as I say, at, at the age of where the... the um, the windows are for the box office there's an exit that goes down some steps into the car park which is a big enclosed uh, multi-story car park so at the bottom of those steps there's quite a large area um, and we utilize that as the um, the dvi reception so we had um basically um a piece of tape um at the bottom down there and we had the railings as you come up the steps in the middle so we had one side was the clean side and one side we class as a dirty side. Mm. So the teams would come in the clean side, they'd walk up um, the, the steps, come into the arena. I um, sort of briefed them then of um, where the deceased were, which one they're going to. There's, do you, um, do you um, just out of curiosity, sorry. do you kind of um, do you kind of grid grid the scene in terms of or how do you how do you sort of break it down into manageable bits? What, what, the way we do it with uh, we were doing in there was because um, we had the, the the floor area of of the arena, um, and a lot of the shrapnels hit the walls and come back in again. Um, we didn't zone it off, so we didn't grid it off. I just called that zone one. So it was scene one, zone one was right. the, the the box office area. Right. So I kept it as simple as that. Right. Each of the um, the deceased had a a scene number um, uh, beside them. Mm -hmm. So we we plotted exactly where they were within mm -hmm. the scene. 
It had all been photographed. It all been videoed. We had 360 um, photography done in there as well. So this is all going on whilst I'm still dealing then with the um, with the, the, the DVI sort of setup whilst mm. we're getting all that set up. Mm. So there's a multiple multiple uh, amount of things happening. Uh, my at one stage I was I was had to stay um, in the concourse area with my phone plugged in because the battery was just gone. Yeah. Um, and, and again, and the, and the point here, just to worth reminding people, you went out to this when you were probably just about to get your gym jams on yes, and, yeah, and go to bed. Yeah. So you've been up all night. I've been up 24 hours. Well, I was I got up at eight o'clock on the Monday um, and I didn't um, finish in the arena until about half past 10 on the Tuesday night. Oh, my God. So um, and even then uh, I had to go back to uh, to the office for a briefing. Um, um, but that's that's what you do, isn't it? That's it's, you just your adrenaline just keeps on kicking in. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But um, but no, it was uh, the 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 recovery then of the bodies was the big thing, um, because obviously we've got uh, the families want you know they they want to know who the who they who's in there and we've got to get them out for the identification. But again, we've got to make sure we do it right because the last thing you want to do is have a um, a wrong identification of a body part, etc. Mm-hmm. So there is procedures we've got to follow and we had to put them in place, um, but. Again, I'm jumping forward a little bit here now, but the the DVI teams um, that we utilized there, there was uh, four teams in total. Um, We made the decision that the first um, recoveries would be of the the bomber uh, and his remains and get him out. Uh, And his remains were taken to um, a mortuary in Liverpool. Mm. Um, And there's a a purpose-built mortuary in Manchester for all the uh, homicide victims in the in the in the Manchester area, right. uh, it's a brilliant setup. Uh, it's up at Oldham Hospital. Um, however, there is still a lot of um, bodies in there that had to be taken out because it gets used as the hospital mortuary right. when it's not used for for homicides. So we had to get all that set up. We had to get the um, uh, CAT scanner, etc., set up, uh, and a lot of other bits and pieces going on. But that's when going say, on. When you say CAT scanner, is that to identify um, shrapnel and pieces yes. of uh, debris? Yeah. So uh, the, the deceased would go through the the, the scan uh, and would highlight a lot of the um, um, well, yeah, a lot of the debris. And obviously, what we're looking for primarily there is component parts of the bomb. Because right. it could be a little bit of a switch or a little bit of um, a detonator still within the victims, which is going to help us re- regarding the, um, uh, the the setup of the device. Um, I'm probably um, uh, I'm mindful of time and stuff here. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm, well, I'm mindful of you. I'm don't worry about me. I'm more worried about you because no, you know you're uh, the one who's kind of yeah. But it's it's more I'm condensing a lot of things what yeah, happened yeah, there yeah, as you can yeah. imagine. Yeah. Um, at one stage, myself and 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 Dave, um, we walked around each of the deceased because all we knew at this stage was there was 19 deceased in there and that's all they had. Mm-hmm. But we walked around uh, and we done a, a brief description of what um, uh, the deceased was, um, male, female, proximate age, and what they were wearing. So we're able to go around and get that out so that when it comes to the casualty bureau, people phoning in, at least they'd have an idea of what we've got inside the scene. Yeah, yeah. We were probably out on two um, and that was just to do with age. One was um, a young girl, but we put her in her her late 20s 
and one was um, another uh, female. Uh, she was in her forties. We bought her early twenties, just mm. because of of what we saw visually yeah, uh, yeah. on the on the night. But the main thing we were able to put on there was a brief description of the clothing, or mm. if if they had clothing on them. Yeah. Um, so that that helped a hell of a lot um, uh, yeah. for the for the. And that's the uh, and this is worth you know talking about unsung heroes. And there's a lot of unsung heroes in these in these cases, aren't there? But the people who work in the casualty bureaus, I mean that that can be a grueling job because. Because they're having to, um, effectively, they're part of the investigation, aren't they? Because they're um, the point of contact between members of the concerned members of the public, uh, trying to find out about their loved ones, and then feeding that information back to the investigation to try and put the pieces of the jigsaw together. But the, you know, very often they're having to manage some desperately worried exactly. and emo- yeah, emotional yeah. people who yeah. are you know yeah. hungry for information so yeah just a massive a massive shout out to those people i suppose oh I definitely definitely um <clears throat> let's say um we're, we're doing all different bits and pieces around them um, or in the scene but our main one then was obviously to get the, the deceased out um once we started doing the the body recoveries um and down into the the holding areas um the the teams the dvi teams were absolutely fantastic um, I've got so much praise for them. It's just untrue. Mm. Um, just get emotional thinking about them now. Mm. Um, it, there, there was no hassle with them. Mm. Um, and the way the DVI team is set up, and I know you've got your other podcast that's probably on there. Mm. You've got your supervisor, photographer, a scribe, and then the searchers. Mm. Um, and um, we've gone through what the forensic um, strategy is going to be. Uh, and the teams were coming in. I would tell them which, which deceased to go to. Um, at one stage, just as we started to do it, one of the, the glass panels came uh, came down oh, and God. shattered behind us, oh. uh, which scared the shit out of us. Sure. Sounded like a bomb going off. Oh, my um, God. But uh, every one of them, they were all volunteers. You know, we, we, we said yeah. that to him. You don't want to go in. Yeah. You don't have to yeah. go in. Yeah, and um, this is but, the thing, and, and if you forgive, forgive me for interrupting, but this is, again, a point that I make again and again and again in this podcast and in the book is to say, if you if you screw the funding for law enforcement nationally, as this government have, has done uh, in the last 10 to 12 years, you're not going to have people who are experienced. Exactly. Uh, because, uh, you know, as you know, and as Lee pointed out in this previous podcast, these are people who that day were probably driving around as traffic officers or they could have been a main office DC investigating your burglary, or they're not, that is not the full-time job. This is no. a, this is an add-on job that they yep. do. It's a highly specialized job, very, yep. very emotionally and physically grueling job to do. But um, yeah, it's just worth pointing out. And this is why I'm doing this podcast to try and educate people about the inter, inter the interdependencies across the police family that make it work. And if you take away these people or the funding or whatever, as they've done, it just doesn't work, does it? Exactly, exactly. Um, <clears throat> and I say sorry, they, sorry to interrupt, no, but I just, no, thought, no, no, okay. I, I just thought that was an important point. But uh, anyway, so your DVI teams are obviously doing a fantastic yeah, job at the uh, scene. They're in and out. Um, they're, they're, they're getting in there. Um, we ended up having to go out and get hard hats. Um, shout out to get some hard hats in. So they all came back in with hard hats on. And then the next time, uh, another panel came down and it came closer. 
and we thought, well, the hard hats aren't going to save us if we get hit with this this glass coming down. So we ended up with um, two fire officers standing at the glass doors with whistles, um, and they would keep an eye. They would keep an eye on the uh, on the glass. Uh, And the, the the health and safety brief basically was: if you hear a whistle, just run like fuck. Um, and uh, just hope you don't run into the path. Uh, well, of the bloody get glass, away you know? from just just run away from it. Yeah, but just run away from it. Oh, um, uh, and you know, uh, and I, this was spoke about at the inquiry. I mentioned this at the inquiry because I think the families uh, they thought that the glass come down on the bodies, but they didn't. We managed to get the ones out closest to it. Mm. Um, but it, some of them did sort of crack in and and go on to some of the bodies, but didn't actually fall down on top of them. I mean, it's interesting when you, because I know I'm not going to name sort of country name and shame certain countries, but I think it's fair to say that, that in this country we adopt the gold standard, don't we, for Definitely. for yeah. for crime scene investigation, the gold standard. Yeah. I would defy any country in the world to do a better job than 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 the than than the Brits do in, mm. in this area of business. But I've heard some horror stories of of catastrophic terrorist incidents and other disasters in other parts of the world where literally bodies are bulldozed, literally yeah. bulldozed yeah. into yeah. a corner somewhere or thrown into, you know, literally thrown into skips. Yes, um, yes. With, the with, body bag and straight in, yeah. With absolutely no attempt whatsoever yeah. to a, a meaningful crime scene investigation, is there? Yeah, well, well on these, um, we... Uh, uh, because uh, I was 99.999% certain that each of the, the victims were victims, um, you don't know that until we've actually got them out and then they go to the mortuary. So the, the strategy was that we would still bag their hands, uh, bag their heads in case there was any evidence on there that we might lose whilst mm. they're in the body bag. Um, and again, this came out in the inquiry, why did you do that? But the... Um, yeah, so these came out in the inquiry. Why did you do that? And it's a case of, well, we don't know. At, that, at this stage, while I'm in there, I don't know what's going to be, I'm going to be told in two or three, four hours' time. Yeah, um, yeah, they yeah. may turn around and say to me, CCTV has got the bomber going in with a female. Mm-hmm. So that female could be one of our victims. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So you don't know that. So you've got to make sure that you've, you've got one chance to get it right. Yeah, and if yeah, you yeah. mess up on that chance, you might mess yeah. up on the evidence, which might mess up on um, a conviction at a later date. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, what we went through, the teams came in, um, worked through the day, and the last uh, deceased was taken from my scene down to the holding area at, na- at seven minutes past nine that night. Right. And uh, it was just fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and then throughout the night, we were able to get them yeah. up to the mortuary yeah. and then for the, the PMs to yeah. be taken yeah. place. And I know that to some people listening, they might they might hear the word fantastic and, and misinterpret that. But I know exactly what you mean, because because ultimately you you owe it to the victim and their families to be able to handle, you know, this with the utmost humanity and sensitivity and the sooner you get them away from there to a a better environment i suppose that's the only way of describing that isn't it um yeah you know with people who will do what's required in the most sensitive way possible so i i completely get it 
Yeah, uh, yeah, it's probably not the right word, but I know um, what you mean. I know what you mean. Very professional, put it that way. They were, you know, very, very professional. Um, uh, And to to get them out there, it it surpassed what I what I ever thought. Yeah. Um, Yeah. yeah. um, But the the DVI teams, my search teams that I had in there for the next um, week, whilst we 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 got all the other evidence up, um, you know, they they done a. I'm going to use the word fantastic again, but they were yeah. very, very professional. No, 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 it is a fantastic job, isn't it? Because uh, and, it, and what they did, yeah. And, any, and anyone, and anyone, and, and I'm quite happy to have a, a very, very blunt conversation with anyone who wants to take issue with that type of language, because, because I would say, if you think it's, if you, if you want to quibble, if you want to quibble over words, then I think in in this scenario, there's a lot more important things to be worrying about yeah. than, than words. Oh yeah, yeah. You know? But, but no, they, they they were brilliant. Everybody that they they, they 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 worked to the capacity, um, and um, uh, it you know it it was one of those where it was a team effort, yeah. and everybody in that team gave one hundred and ten percent, because again it it harks back to what was said at the very beginning, you know, um, we, we we do this for the victims and and for their families, and we want to make sure that we get it right. Yeah. Um, and, um, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we did. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe not so much leading up to the bomb, but that's a completely different scenario. Yeah. And I think that, that that's come over in the inquiry. I know i saying that a little bit flippantly there, but mm-hmm. it's come over in the inquiry that um, everything that happened uh, post the blast, mm. once that blast gone off, um, We've we've had some good good praise, some good feedback, yeah. Um, both from um, Mr. Saunders uh, at the arena, um, from the the, the families um, when we were down at the at the court, etc. Yeah. Um, we were talking to families, and I've talked to some of them um, as well. Um, and and they they realised that yeah, we had a job to do, but we'd done it in a very professional way, yeah. well, and we got their their um, their loved ones back yeah. as quick as we could. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's nothing, you know, your your heart, your heart really goes out to, to everyone involved in this whole dreadful situation, and there's nothing that you can say or do that's going to bring any of those people back, unfortunately. But, um, listen, Bob, I, I think I think we're. I'm looking at the time. I mean, this has been a marathon session, um, <laughs> and we've covered so much ground, yeah. and it's been absolutely fascinating. I've learned a lot. Um, I know that people listening to this will will also learn a lot from it. I mean, I will put a massive health warning on this one before I, you know, in the introductory bit yeah, before we yeah. do, just to say this is this is very very graphic, um, the most graphic one that we've done so far without any shadow of a doubt. Um, uh, so if you're if you're upset by that kind of stuff, just really just don't listen yeah. to it. Um, but uh, but I really. I massively take my hat off to you, mate, um, and and your colleagues who do this incredibly difficult work, and uh, you're to be hugely admired and commended, really. Well, I, I'm only as good as my team, uh, and I always make make sure that 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 comes out there. You know, as you, you're probably aware, it came right out of the blue. Nothing they ever think that would ever happen, but I got uh, um, the award, um, the the MBE, um, oh. from it. Oh bless you! Oh, congratulations! Yeah, well yeah but it, it, it's it's as I say, um, I wouldn't say I'm embarrassed about it, but um, the, the teams made me look good mm. um, because they were absolutely fantastic. Yeah, 
Um, and and I know, um, yeah, ex. Um, we talked about it at the beginning. Uh, ex Navy in the Falklands, mm. the skipper got the awards. We done the yeah. the work, the skipper, you know, and and that's yeah. the way it works. And and yeah. fine, I've no problem with that. Yeah. And likewise in policing, yeah. you know, how, how many um, you know, rank and file officers get a QPM and stuff. Sometimes yeah. you think. Yeah. You know, well, nowadays, yes, probably more so than it was um, yeah. from years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, to to get that was uh, it was so emotional when when I when, no, when I when I first heard about it mm-hmm. because it, I wouldn't have got it on my own. Uh, I know yeah. that for a fact. Mm-hmm. Um, it was because of that team effort of what yeah. we did yeah. and how how we done it. And as I said before, the professionalism of every single one of them. Uh, that's the reason why my name was put forward, only because I was uh, the manager there. Well, I'm, every I'm sure, single one of them w- w- deserves one as well. I'm sure your team were amazing, and and if and it'd be great if if everyone if they could all have got MBEs. But I've got no doubt whatsoever from listening to you today that that you thoroughly deserved that, and not not just for what you did in Manchester Arena, but for all of the other work that you've done over the years, which I've got no I've no doubt whatsoever will have left a indelible mark on you um you know for the rest of your life and um yeah i just uh i take my hat off to you so so you're not you're not lecturing in all of this now, aren't you yeah um i uh, i retired last year i had a look at my, my paint i could have stayed on but um we, we had got the conviction um i wanted to get through the um the, the, the court case again so first of all we wanted to get the um get the the, the brother back from libya Mm-hmm. We got him extradited back, and then uh, got the um, all the forensic evidence ready for the court case. We got mm-hmm. that through, mm-hmm. and then I was dealing with all the forensic evidence for the uh, the arena um, inquiry. Mm-hmm. So we got all that through, and then last year I uh, had a look at it and I thought, well, I think my, my missus had a look at my painting forecast and said, <laughs> "Right, <laughs> come on, time, time, time to go." Time yeah, time to go. Yeah. yeah so yeah. Uh, so I retired last year, um, and. Um, but not, I didn't want to just sit around, put my feet up. Yeah. Um, and as it was, I was, I went back into CT just to help out for a couple of weeks. Mm. But then a job came up um, at um, University of Central um, Lancashire, right. um, at UCLan, for uh, a lecture in um, forensic science and crime scene investigation. I can think of no one better qualified, <laughs> no, well, honestly, to do that. I think that. The, the, students, the students are like listening to some of my stories because I can, you know, relate to when we're talking about murder They'll scenes run out of the room, run out yeah. of the room screaming. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, now? you know, I, I think uh, it's very reassuring to know that, um, you know, you're in a position now to be able to pass on the the, the benefits of, of that vast, vast experience that you have. And and this is something, again, that I, I talked about in my book, is that it seems to me that we've got this situation where so much experience is leaving policing at the moment. Uh, it's walking, people walking out the door, yeah. no effort being made whatsoever to try exactly. and ca- yeah. catch, capture that knowledge or experience. Yeah. Um, very short-sighted in my view, but uh, listen, Bob. Right. Uh, we've been going for two, two and a half hours. Bloody hell! Yeah. Oh my yeah. god. So I'm, I'm going to be getting <laughs> have to cut I, this down. I'm yeah. going to be getting no. I think it's important. I think you know people can either listen to all of it or dip into it, or whatever. But I think yeah. you know this is the joy of podcasts. I think sometimes is that you can really get into a subject in a way yeah. that, that you can't in any other medium, and people are either going to listen to it or they're not. And they, you know, it's up to them, really. So listen, my friend, thanks ever so no much. No problem. 
for coming on. I was it's just about to say, my, my battery's flashing now to say <laughs> you got ten percent left. So I haven't plugged it in because I had that's, to go and get the get this definitely, one. Definitely, so, definitely a good point to, uh, to, to draw yeah, on. But uh, yeah. listen, thanks a million, mate. Really no appreciate problem. it, and you take care. God bless and yourself. Thanks, Ian. Cheers, bye. All the best, mate. Bye, bye, bye. So there you go. Um, fascinating, fascinating interview with Bob there. Uh, quite grueling in places, I think you'll agree. Um, even though I had 30 years in the police, and I know what um, people like Bob do, it really brought it home to me there just how tough a job that is. But it's an incredibly important job, incredibly important, because you've got to, I think, take your hat off to them to be able to put their own feelings of kind of revulsion and anger um, to one side to be able to focus on getting the job done in a way that will identify the people who need to be identified, put them at the scene of a crime and ultimately get a successful conviction at court. So it's one of those jobs that absolutely needs to be done. And thank God we've got people like Bob doing it. So well done, Bob, and well done to anyone who does that job, because I definitely couldn't do it. Right, thanks very much. See you next week. If you enjoyed my podcast, I'd be really grateful if you could go on Apple Podcasts, if you use Apple, and give it a five-star review and maybe add a few words telling me what you like about it, what you'd like to see more of, or what you'd like to see less of. If you use Spotify, you can give a five-star review. You can't write anything, but please give me a five-star review on Spotify. And if you've read my book and you've enjoyed it, can you please, please go on Amazon and review it and add some comments? I'd be really, really grateful. Finally, if you want to send me an email, you can do that um, via my website which is www.tjfbook or one word tjfbook.com um, and I promise you I'll reply to you and finally if you want to join the Tango Juliet Foxtrot Facebook site you will find it funnily enough on Facebook thanks ever so much bye